This is Joseph Gervaisi. I'm here with Brian Sokol. Uh, we are doing this interview in my house in beautiful Roxborough. Today is the, what's today's date? 25th. The 25th of June, 2013, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hi, Brian. <laughs> Hello, Joseph. Uh, we just had a marvelous <laughs> photo session in my backyard. Yes, and I was impressed by your uh, cat enclosure. Yeah, oh, the, the listeners must never know about the cat enclosure. <laughs> <laughs> I just never known anybody to have their entire backyard enclosed for cats. It. This was not my idea, although I paid for it. It's um, really pretty cool, though, honestly. Thanks. But I feel like you should fill it with cats, though. I feel like you should go out and look for cats oh, to put in there. God, I don't need any more cats. How right? many cats do you have? I have three, which is... That's not that one. too many, but <laughs> yeah, but they're always like they're sh they shit into a box and they yeah. pee into a box and they eat cat food and then they get like and all of those things paper. smell. Yeah, that's why it's all in the basement. But okay, maybe we in, should get in your office. Yes, <laughs> it's in my bedroom. <laughs> all right, so now onto some serious shit. Okay, punk rock. Yeah, pretty <laughs> fucking serious. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we'll begin with your birth. Uh, when were you? When were you born? And where were you born? I just actually turned thirty-nine. Uh, June Congratulations! Thank you very much. Um, June twentieth, nineteen seventy-four. I was born. I was born in Chestnut Hill. Um, my parents. June twentieth happens to also be Brian Wilson's birthday of the Beach Boys, who I'm a huge fan of. So that's yeah. one of those things I'm always like, I have the same birth. It's so funny. It's so stupid. But I'm like, I have the same birthday as Brian Wilson. One of my like people that I actually look up to in music. And I'm stuck with Johnny Depp, someone Oof. who's extremely fucking annoying. You realize that he's he's older than Daniel Craig? No, I don't. If you were to put them side by side, he's like five years older than Daniel Craig. Wow. It's incredible. He like doesn't age. Yeah. But he's annoying. Um, extremely annoying. My, uh, I was born in Chestnut Hill, at Chestnut Hill Hospital. Um, my parents were... I'm assuming that'll lead into maybe something with parents or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, good, yeah. Tell my, me. Uh, I grew, my, my dad grew up in Orland, which is uh, one of the first suburbs outside of Philadelphia, um, north, just north of the city. It's on the R5, actually. Um, mm -hmm. And he grew up in, that, in the house that I was raised in. Um, my mom lived in Winmore. They met, and we were, they were born in Chestnut Hill. Right. So, yeah, it's... Uh, so, why don't you tell the listener a little bit about what the neighborhood of Chestnut Hill is, is like, or at least your your part of it? Well, it's weird. I, I live. I was. I was raised in Orland, which is um, Chestnut Hill is the north is the is the furthest north section of the city, straight as the crow flies from Center City. Mm -hmm. um, it's typically been a uh, financially well off area of the city. Lots of old stone houses. It's got it's got a very nice uh, running sort of main street with shops and all these things. Um, it's very almost Norman Rockwell looking at it. And right as you cross uh, outside of Chestnut Hill to go a little bit further north, you get into sort of the area that I grew up. My friends where where we were all raised, which is an, an enclave almost of towns called Flower Town, Winmore, Erdenheim, and Orland. Mm -hmm. Each one of them are very small um, blips on a map. You know, they're not actually like really cities. Like my my town, Orland, I think is cons you know made up of. I want to think like ten square miles tops. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very small. The main street looks like something you would see in the fifties. You know, it's just, it was just very picturesque, very suburban, but not like. McMansion, it was like almost like traditional, what you imagine of like almost a perfect suburban scenario to be. There's just lawns, individual homes. Mm -hmm. um, the the area that, that my that my parents grew up in 
it was development off of the lines as everybody sort of flooded out of Philadelphia. Um, you know, the, basically the whites got out of the city and they started settling on the train lines. And the R five was one of, was one of the ones um, that the Orleans Station had. And every house around there was exactly the same as a development. You know, they were all built these little cinder block boxes, and everyone bought them. And mm-hmm. but it, but it was interesting. By the time I was born and growing up, they had all sort of taken on their own character by the people who had bought them. Uh, you know, my dad had bought his that bought the house from his father. Mm-hmm. And then he built, built on all these ha- parts to the house, you know? So everything has like this foundation that was the same, but each house had its own personality, which I always thought was kind of interesting because mm-hmm. growing up in the suburbs, you're always kind of like, oh, the suburbs suck. But there's also some sort of weird, magical perversion to the suburbs. That it, and it had those little charm qualities that people, even in that type of regimented scenario of what you're trained to be like, oh, this suburban situation is a is a homogenized white town you know mm-hmm. there was individuality trying to strive to find its own little spot it's like you know, at least let me have my house painted this color or I'm going to have right. a, a, a porch on this side where you don't have that you know mm-hmm. and I always think that's kind of interesting you know you try and give people the benefit of the doubt right um, but yeah so then so that's where I was that's where I grew up was a little little town of Orleans still there my parents still live in the same house um, I was up there last week because uh, the nanny who watches our my wife and my child uh, was on vacation and uh, my parents were helping us watch her, so we went up and slept in, slept at the house and visited. And it was in my brother's old room, and it's always funny to think about that. Oh, this is where I grew up, and these are real. They, you don't lose them, you know. They're real roots, you know. They're real places, you yeah, know? and yeah, I think yeah. that's really cool. I feel very fortunate to have that. It seems like a lot of people came out of that area. I mean, we can kind of maybe get into that slightly later, but it, a lot of people who came into the, the Philly punk scene came out of those little clusters of, of little towns. Yeah, there. It, 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 it's true, and it, it is kind of a strange thing, because I, I was thinking about that the other day, because I actually, Adam Gorin, who you interviewed, um, is, one, is probably my oldest friend. I've known him since uh, we were in first grade, when we met. We went to school together, and we met him, and I became his bodyguard. And he was he was like this little tiny kid, and I was always the big kid, so yeah. I was his bodyguard. And uh, and yeah, and it's, and it's interesting to me because I was thinking about that. We went camping last weekend together because we don't get to see each other as often. So we got together, we went out, and we were he we got home from camping. He sent an email saying, "You know, I'm so lucky, fortunate to have friends for this long and be able to still call you guys my close friends." And and it amazes me constantly that there's this core of of you know. From when we started out, there might have been like eight people that grew, that just kept growing um, into like 20 people and then 25 people. And then we all started going into the city and then connected up with all those other parts that were in Philadelphia. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a strange thing. Um, so what was the, the seed for you? I mean, what as, as, as young you growing up in there, you know, how did so the... So punk? How, yeah, the punk... Well, I just... We'll start... What were your interests prior to punk, and then how did you oh. wind up coming into this this big thing? Well, th- yeah, that, I mean, because that's a good point, because uh, you know, most of my friends, my oldest friends who got into music with me and, and started doing music in Philadelphia and all that stuff, I was friends with them way before we all got into punk rock music, so it wasn't like I even met them f- out of punk rock, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I knew we actually all just grew into it together. Yeah. Um, let me think. When, when I was a kid, my first love was art. I was... Um, I had a gift, a natural gift that my parents encouraged, which was funny because my parents have always been very strict. But you know, not funny, but it's just like there was no art in my house. You know, mm-hmm. my parents weren't like you know art teachers or painters or free spirits. You know, they were very yeah. conservative, very 
typical parents. But they were always very open to my eccentricities compared to what my older brother was like, which was sports and all these things. So I was very, at an early age, drawing and, and painting and doing things like that. Um, and then from that, I think what ended up happening was I did naturally get interested in music when MTV came on. Um, I was I'm old enough to remember when it came on, and I remember watching it. And being very interested in music for some reason, um, even though I wasn't interested in punk rock or any sort of style of music, mm-hmm. I loved to draw, but then I also loved to go out in the basement and like fake play guitar on a tennis racket and watch Abacab on the video you know and Uh I love that song and 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 I remember sitting by the stereo waiting for sitting by the TV with a little tape deck you know I'm sure you did and recording the songs and you know and I remember The Police being like a band that I was really like immediately kind of interested in and other than that my my passions were I got forced into playing some sports because my parents were like, you can't sit around doing nothing, and you can't just draw all day. So you have to get outside and do something. So I was a swimmer. Yeah. So I did that. Um, and honestly, Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, all of my friends were into, into that. We all did that. Yeah, yeah, um, I did the same thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. Someone was asking me about it the other day, Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts. So they always say, like, you know, it's so funny. You know, like, you guys are all, like, these left-leaning. You were all raised up in this, like, Christian whatever type of thing. But it wasn't, Boy Scouts wasn't like that for me. I mean, I, I thought of it more of, like, almost like a outdoor camping thing than any sort of religious or... No, oh, I didn't see any elements of that. I yeah. mean, I was just learning how to do shit. You know, how do you that's, make a fire? How do you make a right. split? Give somebody CPR? And that's what I want. With your that's clothes what, on or something. Who are those people that are doing that? Like, are they like in the, in the, in the, in the you know, the Midwest or something? Are they doing God? I mean, we had none of that. We were just... So yeah, that's what we all did. We all just, you know, went to school, goofed around, Dungeons and Dragons, drew pictures... Um, played G.I. Joe figures and Star Wars figures loved that kind of stuff I mean everything that was kind of like normal but a little more hardcore than than the normal kids out there like my brother loved Star Wars but he kind of like wanted to play football too I wanted to sit and set up bases in the basement on the town table and spend all afternoon playing Star Wars and having skirmishes you know what I mean I must say I was the same way totally you know and and that's where I think my friends we we all kind of clicked that way is that we were all kind of into that you know Mm -hmm. but I also was really strangely I was really into like the army and stuff too though like I have a I was, you know, up until when I got into punk rock, I was very interested in the idea of war and and joining the army and shooting guns and all this stuff. I mean, I have a I have a book that I made when I was in elementary school. I think I must have been like fourth grade. It's like, tell me about you. It's like a bio book, and like a couple of pages, like, what don't you like? I was like, hippies, <laughs> commies. You know, not knowing what any of that was, but I was very interested. It's like, okay to hate commies, though. Well, yeah, yeah, totally. Socialists are bad, though. <laughs> Um, so this was also bad. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, you know, it was weird. Like, I, you know, I, I wasn't anything strange. I wasn't like a, a weirdo nerd geek kid. I had, I had friends. We had a lot of fun. We played, rode our bikes, and it felt pretty normal. You know, so that's kind of like. I always liked comic books too. I loved comic books. My grandmother was a had a, was worked at a um, little store, and. Uh, Every week she would go grocery shopping with my mom, and she would always bring me every single comic book that came out. She'd buy me every single one. And I thought she got it for free, but I realized, no, of course she didn't get it for free. I mean, she's just an employee at the shop, but she bought me every single comic book. Even, like, grew ones I didn't want. You know what I mean? Like, crappy ones. So here's every kind. And it came in this little bag, well, little, but big bag, Uh wrapped tight, and every... 
every week. It was amazing. So, but yeah, that's what we were into. So then eventually, I guess, that you discover a punk or move towards something that's somewhat more <laughs> deviant or... Uh... Yeah, I think, honestly, my... I think, yeah, deviant is probably a good word to say. And I, and I wonder if that's... I wonder if that comes up a lot when you talk to people about punk rock. Like, I don't... Like, my friends and I weren't bad. We, you know, we weren't, like, troublemakers or anything like that. You so know? there were no drugs, no drinking... Not at all. Right. No. Um, well, let me backtrack. Let me think. So, the, my first friend that I met was... My real first friend that I met that I remember consciously thinking, like, this is my close friend was Adam. And then I, it grew into my friend Greg Giuliano, who would go on to play drums in several of the bands I played with. And this guy named TJ Cooney, who would, who would play in a band with me, one of my first bands. And my friend Paul Stefano, we all were in, in elementary school together. At fourth grade, Adam left, who was again, my, like my best friend. Adam went to a private school. And at that point, you know, when you're in fourth grade, if someone leaves, it's not like you stay in touch with them. Yeah, that's They're it. gone, I mean, it, which is amazing to me. Cause like when I think about it now, like we were in first, second and third grade. We saw each other every day. I was, I mean, this sounds you know, weird, but like Adam and I were like, Adam would sit on my lap. We were like that close, you know, like we were just buddies, you know, right. we would go to his house after school for like, um, mothers against drunk driving meetings, you know, <laughs> which I don't even know what the hell we were supposed to do <laughs> in those meetings, but they had them and the, the kids would come and whatever. Adam's mom would be like the host. Um, but then yeah, after three years, poof, he's just gone. Right. And I don't see him again, uh, for many, many years. Um, so then my other friend, my, I become a, my next really, really close friend is this fellow named Chris O'Neill, who ended up singing for Fracture, actually. And I met him in elementary school, and we became just, you know, blood brothers, you know, and we were inseparable. G.I. Joe, Star Wars figures every day, bases, whole house set up, you know what I mean? Yeah. The whole thing, full rooms, you know. We loved everything he loved, I loved. And we were just, we both made our own, we, like developed our own connection and our laughs like we would have the same laugh that people would joke about it was like creepy it wasn't like a, a th like oh they have the same it was like we had been so close to each other that we started laughing the exact same way and from then I think we all started getting a little bit older that was probably like from fifth grade into middle school we all started getting bad in the sense of like fun like you do fireworks and you know making napalm and lighting your, your friend's you know lawn on fire by accident and shit like yeah. that um, ghost riding bikes or, you know, getting into a fight or something here or there. Not, but in that day, you know, not a real fight, you know, yeah. pushing people off or whatever. Yeah. And I think at that point, I think when we hit middle school, there was a group of us, there was probably like eight of us that were all in school together. And I think we started to feel, we were all in Boy Scouts and, and in Boy Scouts, we had, we had tried drinking before, but we didn't do it. Like someone stole like a six pack and we drank. Someone brought, stole cigarettes from their parents and we smoked some cigarettes, you know. Um, our leaders in that, in that troop were always very open, very kind of let us hands off. They knew, I think they knew that we were doing some weird things, but they were very like, it's all right, as long as you're safe, you know. Yeah. Um, and every, every month we would go camping together. So we would experience these things. We'd hang out, we'd talk. So like, it was just constant exposure to one another, you know, it's just like a family. Um, and then, I think we started becoming feeling like maybe we were a little bit different in our mentality about things and there was no like definition to that but we were in boy scouts which some of the other kids were like the cool kids 
weren't in Boy Scouts. Why were we in Boy Scouts? Mm-hmm. We didn't mind, but it just seemed like it seemed like it put a flag up. Like that's weird. Or like my friend Chris, Chris and I, we were in seventh or eighth grade, and we were still playing with GI Joes and Star Wars and stuff like that. And a lot of the other kids didn't do that, which was thought we we thought was a bit odd. Um, so I feel like there was some something that was like gestating, where it's like something seems strange, like. We we keep, our school was very small. You know, I graduated graduated high school with only 120 people. So like we had a very small school all through our formative years. But and we got along with everybody. Like we never it wasn't like you know jocks versus punks or anything. It doesn't that didn't even exist. You know. Yeah. Um, but I think we just I think there was some sort of like we were just kind of like these weird, somewhat outsiders. You know, and we were getting exposed to a couple different things. Like someone so we would go to a party. And, I mean a seventh grade party you know a makeout party yeah. and someone would play like the Dead Milkmen you know or the Violent Femmes and at that time that sounded very unlike anything on the radio you know it was like very what? Yeah, it's, I mean it's hard to comprehend now because it seems so kind of poppy totally but at the time yeah it, it sounds it, like it really... I remember hearing the I remember I still remember the exact party that I was at and the room I, can, I could draw the room I can smell what it looked like I know what the lighting was like the first time I heard the Violent Femmes, and I just thought it was the... I, I didn't like it. I mean, I, I would never... I'm not going to lie and be like, oh, I was into all this... I thought I was like, what is this fucking music? You I know, think it takes so, a while for your brain to come around to right. understanding it before you right. can even like it. I mean, the girls that were there liked it. And I think that's why everybody was like, oh, yeah, let's listen to it. You know, because the girls liked it or something. But, yeah, but that's when I think I started realizing maybe there was something else that I wasn't quite aware of, at least, you know? Like... Maybe just in the back of my head, but not in a real meaningful way. Because I still think I was kind of a little bit of a marginalized character in the sense that, again, it's by seventh and eighth grade, I was still playing G.I. Joe figures and drawing, you know, violent, bloody pictures of, like, horror movies and stuff. Because I was always big into horror movies and shit. Um, But then I think what ended up happening was um, a kid named Scott Blumenthal uh, transferred into our school in seventh grade. And he was a thespian. An actor? Yes, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, at that time, you were just like, what's a thespian? And he was very serious about it. He was this tiny kid. I mean, he was like four foot, uh-huh. you know, if he was anything. Little just elf. A little kid. But he somehow seemed so worldly to us. Um, and I don't know what it was, but very early on, he started explaining to us that he was doing all these wild things that we didn't know anything about. Like... He would. He said that he actually would get on the train, and we knew this train because we'd walk up and hang out at the train. But we never got on the train, you know. Yeah. Maybe we'd smoke a cigarette by the train, you know. He would go down to the city, down to Philadelphia, to a place called South Street, and he would go see something called the Rocky Horror Picture Show on like Saturday nights. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know what the fuck that is. What are you talking about? Like, I, and he would try and explain what it was. Like, what? First of all, what South Street even was. I mean, you've heard about it, like all these hippies and weirdos hang out down there, but you know, can't imagine it. And and he would talk about this Rocky Horror Picture Show thing, and again, I was like, what? People, guy dressing up as a woman, what are you talking about? First of all, how are your parents even letting you go down and do this? Or do you go with other people? Are they older than you? But he listened to sort of more alternative music than we were used to as well. He liked the Violent Femmes. He liked bands like that. So he became sort of a, uh, an impetus to our friend T.J. Cooney, who was, at the time, growing up... Um, I mean, I could go through an entire biography of all of these friends, because they all have just different characteristics that were so important to growing up. Um, 
TJ was kind of like the leader of our group. He was like, he's the first kid who kissed a girl. You know what I mean? He's the first girl, who, first boy who filled up a girl. You know, the first guy who got in a fight with his mom, smoked cigarettes. You know, he was just he was just the one who was just just a little bit on the edge. You know, like right, whatever. So you keep up with him as he moves, keep moving forward. Yeah, and and honestly, and just sort of. Don't get in on because he was also kind of one of he was kind of like the sharpest of us in the sense of like cutting you down, you know. Like when that when that you know your that, that starts happening in friends, you start realizing that you can like make fun of your friend in a loving way, but also in a way to keep them in line. Yeah. And I think young kids learn that, and I think it is it's, it's almost like a control thing, like a, it's like a pack mentality. There's you know? a pecking order. Yeah. Exactly, and, and it's kind of be established and maintained. Totally, it's yeah. just like it's just like dogs. You know what I mean? Like it's the same thing. At the, at the, the second you, I feel like the second you get to like fourth or fifth grade. Up through high school, if you've got a serious group of friends, especially for at least for my experience with you know, we only had boys, you know, there were no girls in our friends. It was just a bunch of guys. It was definitely some sort of pecking order. People took on specific characteristics. They were, you know, Greg Giuliano was like what we was the smart guy. You know, Adam was like the goofy guy. TJ was the leader, and you didn't fuck with you know. If TJ said it. You don't want him on your bad side because he was the one who had the best mom jokes. He was the one who, you know, all these things. It's just like at the time you laugh about. But he became friends with Scott Blumenthal, who was the kid who was sort of like, you know, our introduction into those odd things. And he would sit with us at lunch and tell us these strange stories. And um, TJ started get borrowing cassettes from him. And one of the first cassettes that Scott gave to him was a, a tape by the band called The Sex Pistols. Mm-hmm. Um, and... TJ took to it immediately. I, I don't know. We never really... Uh, further down the road, TJ and I, we sort of separated. And we'll get to that or whatever, I imagine, if it doesn't become tomorrow. Because I'm just talking. But um, he just took to it right away. And he was just obsessed with it. And um, I remember he, what, what Scott gave him was the great rock and roll swindle. He didn't even start with, you know, never mind the bullocks. Um, and... We would always go over to TJ's house after school and, you know, like I said, make napalm or some other stupid thing. And he played us uh, Friggin' in the Riggin'. And I remember sitting there and being like, this is the stupidest fucking song I've ever heard. And being so angry that a band was called the Sex Pistols. I thought it was the dumbest name. The song was stupid. Like... I don't like comedy all that much. I mean, I love to laugh and I love I have a lot of funny friends. And I like to goof around. But like I never like joke music. I never like I, I never I rarely watch comedy movies or anything like that. And that just for some reason bothered me for some reason. I don't know why, but it just like the fact that it was like some goofy fun joke song, I just thought it made the whole thing not worth my time. It was just stupid. And that was it. And I was like, ah, whatever. This is something called punk rock, whatever. And TJ loved it and who the hell cares? What whatever happens. Well, um, I don't know what happened. It's, it's such a fast thing. Um, within a couple weeks, I think, then, uh, Scott gave him uh, Ramon's Mania on cassette. Um, and I'd be hard-pressed to find anybody the first time you hear the Ramones don't at least feel something. Yeah, you know, yeah, when you've yeah. never heard anything. It's like, even if you don't like punk music, you hear that and you're tapping your toe and you're into it. And something about it, you want to listen to it more, you know? Um, and then it was the first Clash LP was a cassette, and I remember seeing that cassette, green, a green cover with the cover, and I was like, "There's only three people in the band." Even though I love this Police, I didn't understand there's only three people in the band. Um, and all of a sudden, those those songs I started to like. I really started to respond to like the Ramones and the Clash and all this stuff, and and uh, 
And all of my friends started listening to it at the same time. You know, we would go on camping trips with Boy Scouts, and we'd bring a little boombox radio and hit the cassette, and we'd listen to music. I was setting up our tents or sitting around the fire, you know? And and it was weird, because like I said, with, with our Boy Scout experience, like, we would go camping, and the adults that took us camping would just camp way over here. And amazingly, would just let us set up our camp over here with our own fire, and honestly, would never even interfere with us. It's almost like, looking back now, it's almost amazing. It's almost as if you had people who were saying, you know what, you need to be kids away from everything. And you just need to be with your own type and just hang out. Right, so they're, they're making sure there's not a Lord of the Flies scenario developing, right. but other than that... You're on your own. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy. And so like we would... And so that's the thing is, like, I feel like in those times we put those songs on not knowing what any of it meant. You know, there was no concept of, like, punk music or, like, we, yeah, they were punks. But for us, that just meant, you know, oh, they have safety pins in their ears. You know, there was yeah. no anything else. It's like a, co- it's a costume, you know? Yeah, giant mohawk. Yeah, and it's like... You didn't know any history or anything like that. But you would hit play on the, t- the boombox and go about your, your day or night at the campsite talking and hanging out. And again, just kind of like furthering that bond between those friends, those, those, those eight core friends that were just... And I just cemented it. And almost that like that music became like this weird like soundtrack around that. That mm-hmm. Again, I mean, going back and looking at it, it probably wasn't like that at the time, but... It, you reminisce about it and it feels like I wonder if that's kind of like what it was like you're connected to it because of that time and you you sort of it all meshes together it all pours into this pot you know mm-hmm. um, so we all just started listening to that stuff and that's kind of what we got into and very quickly into 8th grade our middle school ended at 8th grade you went to high school at ninth grade now I know they do a lot of things where the middle school ends at ninth grade or something uh, like no, that no mine was the same way was it the same way? okay yeah, yeah, yeah. So in eighth, so we went through summer of seventh grade, just listening to those music, but just as background things and getting a little bit stranger and maybe being like a little bit more standoffish to the cool, what we perceive as the cool kids. Mm-hmm. By eighth grade, we were fully like we're punks, not knowing what that meant, but we're like we're punks. We, you know, TJ would wear a Clash t-shirt, Sex Pistols t-shirt. You know, we would wear Chuck Taylors or something. You know, like we thought that was <clears throat> punk or whatever. You know, and. Um, and we kept expanding what we were listening to. And we met a couple more people. Um, we met a couple more people in school that were kind of kind of metalheads, but also were interested into some, in some of those bands. So they might give you, like, DRI. Or they might give you, like, things like that. Um, this is probably a big time for crossover, thrash. Right, exactly. Yeah. Suicidal tendencies and all this so stuff. So this is, like, what, like, 87? Uh, yeah, I'd say, like, 86. 788 into that we graduated 92 so right in that window um so all through eighth grade we start really kind of wearing different stuff and of course you know i don't know if you had the same thing with a group of friends or anything like that but some of those friends are more willing to push the boundaries of what they wear and style themselves than others are like yeah well some of them weren't allowed i mean just like their parents with you know you can't cut your hair like you're absolutely right this shirt that says sex on it you know so that's it not gonna happen yeah Yeah, my friend my friend greg was not allowed to wear any black no black (laughs) shirts you know, which is funny. But then my friend Chris O'Neill and TJ, their parents let them get combat boots, and they wore combat boots. And and we all, I started wearing my dad's like combat boots from Vietnam and all this stuff. And we just started just little things, you know, and kind of trying to be whatever we thought punk was, drawing on our books, Sex Pistols, and all this shit. Mm-hmm. Then I think the big thing for me was my friend Chris O'Neill. Uh, was friends or one of our other friends this kid named Ron McNally who was kind of, of if I was to say the classification of our friends was kind of like the kid with the bad home life 
Mm-hmm. You know, he always had the one kid. Yeah. Parents were strange. He he had some definitely had some issues. Tough life at home, but at that age, you can't do anything about it, so you just hang out. You know, and but he met somebody who gave him a cassette of uh, Dead Kennedys, and I remember hearing the name of that band and just being like, "Whoa, that's fucking it's gonna heavy, be some serious dude. Shit. That's heavy." And he passed it to my friend Chris O'Neill again, who's my, who at that time was my best friend. And we spend every single day together, every single night together. We just hang out. And we're sitting in his bedroom. He had been obsessed with the Beatles. His favorite band was the Beatles before, before punk. And uh, he puts on this, uh, this tape, Bedtime for Democracy. And he plays Chicken Chicken Formist. Mm-hmm. And again, I still can remember sitting on his bed in his room, what the room looked like, how, how sloppy it was, where our toys were. And I remember just hearing just that the ding 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 ding, just mm-hmm. hearing how slow the song was. Being like, oh, that's, well, that's weird. It's not what I expected. And then when it and just going, it'd be like, whoa, what the fuck? <laughs> and then hearing like you know, chicken chicken formers like your parents, and all of a sudden something like that made me be like, whoa, there's something way more. Yeah, the lyrics on that are an advanced. It, totally. Yeah, it, yeah. Because I, and, and the thing is, I think that's what spoke to me because, like you said. There's the whole Sid Vicious line, and you know when you grow up listening to this, and you, you know you're like, oh, punk is sex is the Sex Pistols and Sid Vicious, and you know doing drugs and all this shit. <laughs> yeah. And you hear those lyrics that actually are, are saying something. All of a sudden, you're like, it's. Then I think then when I think what ends up happening, it starts making sense. Like you then start classifying certain things. Like all of a sudden, when you hear the Dead Kennedys, the Ramones move over here into something a bit lighter, not quite as intense. They're great, you love them, but it's not. It's just over here. The Sex Pistols become way more just kind of like, well, they were kind of like maybe like the the first ones, but they didn't have anything to say per se, you know, like, because I feel like once you hear the Dead Kennedys and you start thinking, and then you start re- relating to what the Clash were saying, be like, oh wait, the Clash were actually saying something. Like when they say White Riot, they weren't saying they were people go out and beat people up just for fun. There are all these other things going on that you didn't didn't realize. Yeah. yeah. And then that whole core band starts sort of. You know, swirling around, and then you start listening to Bedtime for Democracy every day, and you realize every song has a message, and every song goes someplace else. Then you're just like, okay, then it's all on. So that summer, eighth grade, uh, we decided uh, at the end of the school year we're starting a band. Um, we just said we had to start a band. This is what we want to do. We're we're drawing pictures of ourselves, what our band would look like. Uh-huh. Uh, I still have a notebook with those drawings. Those little, little stick man with little stick oh, guitars. Yeah. Oh yeah! Oh totally. You know, they would be into this and all this stuff, and what your first demo tape would look like, or your recording or album. I don't demo tape, but just what your album looked like. You didn't even know what a demo tape was. Um, so then we sat down. I think I remember. I think we sat down at a lunch one time. We said, "Okay, who's going to play what?" And you know, at that point, Greg was learning. He was in the band, and he was learning the drums. So he had a snare drum and a hi hat. Set. Done. Drums. Um, TJ was going to be the singer because he was the leader and he loves uh, Johnny Rotten so he's like I'm singing done Ron McNally who was the hard home life had a Stratocaster black and white Stratocaster and like a little 15 watt amp done guitar you know Chris O'Neill had a acoustic guitar I don't know where he got it from but acoustic guitar with three strings on it done rhythm guitar (laughs) And I was like, well, I have a harmonica, so I'll be the harmonica player. Perfect, for, perfect for a punk band, right, of right, course. Right, exactly. So that didn't happen. So basically what ended up happening, and I said, well, I'll be the bass player. 
Should have gotten a juice harp. <laughs> I know that would have that would have been a way to do it. So I got my so I looked my again. Here's another example of my parents being shockingly amazing. Um, not knowing anything about this stuff, they weren't again not from art, not from music, not from anything. I basically come home and say, I want to buy a bass guitar. Well, first of all, I, I imagine my parents don't even know what the hell, barely know what a guitar is or yeah. what it even looks like to know like, well, what's a bass guitar? So. Immediately go, my dad gets me, or we go out to 7-Eleven or something like that and get one of those uh, trading times, which at the time, you know, was uh, yeah, yeah. fucking everything. And we find this little bass. It says a jazz bass, Fender jazz bass. I wanted a P bass because that's what Sid Vicious played. But I got this, so 80 bucks, Royersford PA. So my dad says, do you know what you're looking for? I said, I have no idea. But we dri- he drives me out to Royersford. He tells me the history of how Royersford burned down from some, some huge fire. We go to this guy's house who's a bass player. He has a basement filled with upright basses, basses. He's clearly like a, an educator. He's got this little brown, not even a good looking brown P ba- uh, jazz bass with a white pick guard, 80 bucks at the time, which seemed like a ton of fucking money. Mm-hmm. And we bought it. We brought it home in a little, one of those little cardboard cases that's shaped. It's like a gig bag, but <laughs> even lamer than a gig bag, you know? <laughs> and bring it home and just start. And I, he then takes me out to. Um, music center or some other little store when music stores actually had you know were around you know in little shop malls i buy this tiny little bass amp and uh we have we start practicing in chris o'neill's shed which is still there i still drive by um every day after swim practice every day we sit in that shed it's 90 degrees just sweating we have a little fan in the window we're smoking cigarettes um and it's Greg on a hi-hat and a snare. TJ singing. Ron uh, Ron threw this little cardboard-backed amplifier that was this thin. So you can't imagine the speaker could be very good. <laughs> right. Singing through a little PV amplifier. Chris strumming a three-string acoustic guitar, which nobody can hear. And me thumping on this little bass. And we learned, the first song we learned was Pretty Vacant by the Sex Pistols. And that's, that, that's what we did. And all fucking summer... We lived in that shed. Uh, we lived in that shed. Paul, our, our close friend Paul, was not in the band, but he would come and sit in the shed with us and hang out. You know, because we were all just lived together. That's what yeah. we did. You know. So you weren't taking any formal lessons. No, you were just not at all. Ron, I think, took a little bit of playing formally, maybe mm-hmm. when he was younger. And, I, and like I said, Greg was taking some lessons for snare. But I mean, at the time, I think he could just go, and that's it. Yeah. Um, but we learned, you know, I, I, again, I don't know how we learned. I don't know what we did, but we learned. We learned the songs. And, you know, we learned uh, Pretty Vacant. We learned Holidays in the Sun. We learned, um, you know, a Clash song. I don't, I don't remember which one we learned, actually. But that's what we did. And, and all summer, we learned them. And then we made a couple changes. Like, you know, TJ started uh, playing guitar because he didn't really want to be Steve Jones. Mm-hmm. And TJ turned out to be a phenomenal guitar player in a classic sense. Like, I mean, he just, like a guitar hero, like... Wailing Steve Jones solos, he could play him perfectly. Johnny Thunders lives again, is what he was like. <laughs> and Ron started singing. Chris quit the band, or we threw him out, I think, because he liked the Beatles too much for us, or something like that. You know, Greg got a real drum set with Roto Toms. I bought a, TK, a, a PV TKO seventy five, which could actually be heard. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. And so for that summer, going into ninth grade, we then really became. I think that's when we really, I mean, seventh into eighth, we were like, we're punks. And I think in the eighth into ninth grade, we went to high school. I think we walked into high school, totally different people. We were like, we were in a punk band. We play music. Um, 
this is what defines us. This is who yeah. we are. We may, now that that's just a, that was the first line in the book, if you will. But like the book had been started, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like, right. and I think that was pretty amazing. And and what was the name of the band? The name of the band was the Unwanted. Was the name, and then of course it changed because we could never pick it, pick anything. That band was then it was the Unwanted. It started as. Then I think it changed occasionally. Like I think we were called uh, AK Forty Seven. Skeleton Crew with a K. Ooh, yeah, with a K. I think there was an umlaut too. Uh, always yeah. And then we settled. We honestly, then we finally settled on the Tasmanians. Is what our band, our first real full band, was called. Um, when we actually started writing original music, which I actually still have cassettes of, which is amazing. Um, like I have our recordings, and uh, and we just started recording, just playing and practicing all the time. And then, in a weird twist of twist of events. Every kid's a dick at some point in their life, right? You know, no matter how cool you are growing up, you're a dick. And in Boy Scouts, there was a kid named Niles Martin who uh, was in our Boy Scout troop, but was very different from most kids. And we picked on him. I mean, there's no other way to say it. We picked on him. And we ended up actually becoming friends with him because his father, which sounds horrible now, but his father was a music therapist and had a lot of recording equipment in his house. Mm-hmm. So through Boy Scouts, he heard that we had a band. We actually, our first show was played at one of our Boy Scout meetings. We brought all of our equipment down. We had a show for the six or seven other people that were at Boy Scouts. We were wearing our uniforms? No. We didn't wear our uniforms. Oh, you didn't, as a boy our, uh, no, in our meetings, we just wore our street clothes. Yeah. It was weird. So we went in our punk stuff. I have, again, I have photographs from that uh, event. Um, and he was like, hey, you should come over. And again, looking back now, I wonder if this was kind of like one of those things. Like, ah, like maybe I can get this this bullying to stop by in, inviting me over to my house to take advantage of this recording stuff because he was into, he was into like his father recording music and just recording things so he invited us over well of course being the shallow dicks that we were our relationship changed with him immediately yeah, all of a sudden we're best friends offer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. now we're buddies and you know granted it sucks how it happened but it ended up being nice that we actually stopped become because he was one of the few people we actually picked on you know and we then became like friends because of that. And then from there on, every weekend was spent at his parents' house. So his parents always went away for some reason. And we would sit in his bedroom and he would run wires up to the, up to the thing and we would record onto, onto quarter-inch tapes, song after song after song. And, uh, and that's where we started all through, that was ninth grade and 10th grade and we just would play our basement shows, you know? And our, our friends then started forming bands. Um, we met some people when we got to be 10th grade and the ninth graders came in and a couple of those kids were some punk kids mm-hmm. that lived near TJ and Greg and they had known them so they kind of got influenced and they started getting into it so now instead of eight of us there were like 12 of us so they formed a band called Vile um, and we became friends with them then the thing started to build a little bit so we'd play it you know Vile's basement's house or we'd mm-hmm. play at TJ's basement's house we'd have these little parties and there'd be like the bands, our friends who weren't actually in one of the bands, and like two girls, mm-hmm. you know, and that was it, and that's what we did. Um, yeah, it's the microcosmic version of, of a punk scene. Yeah, totally. And that's the templates there. Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, that was really that. That was it. I mean, that was all we did was we talked about this stuff, we breathed this stuff, and then, um, then I think probably about tenth grade, eleventh grade, tenth grade actually, I was introduced to more American hardcore music. Um, and punk became way more like of course Dead Kennedys were like you know West Coast and all this stuff and you and then you would listen to Black Flag and things like that but I don't think I ever became consciously aware of like 
I became consciously, I actually became consciously aware of like DC. Like someone, someone, my cousin, an older cousin who was into music, who wasn't a punk, but was into like different kinds of music, it played me a Fugazi tape. And this is probably, looking back now, was probably right after the first Seven Song EP came out. It was probably like six months, because she knew nothing about the band. She said, oh, you want to hear this song? And she played it from his waiting room. And, and of course, you hear that. And that's like hearing Chicken Shit Conformist all over again, because you're just like, what is this palm muting? What is this? What is this sound that's going? What is that? Like how? How? I don't even understand what that is. Um, and of course, she said, "Oh, it's this band from France." Because you know, our Discord directors say they were made in France. So for some reason, she thought they were from France. Um, some other. She told me some other story that the singer like was banned in America. Like they can't play in America. Some crazy. I mean, just be like, "Whoa!" And of course, I didn't know what Fugazi was. What a weird name that is when you hear for hear yeah. it for the first time. Um. So I started listening to Fugazi and loving that cassette, and that sort of spread a couple other to other bands, you know. And then, um, now you had not made it into the city yet at this point, right? We had just started making it to the city. Like that's a good we, that's a good backup. When we got into high school, I think is when we really started getting. We started going to the city, but we only went to the city to shop. You know, we took the train down and went to South Street because so that was a cool so place. So we would go to Skins. And exactly. Black. Exactly. Yeah. We would do stuff like that. That's all. We didn't go anywhere else. We didn't know anywhere else. I mean, I still remember coming off the train and not ever remembering which way was north and south to go to South Street. And be like, I'm going to get lost and I have no idea how to get home. Yeah. But yeah, we would start going to the city then and everything and becoming a little bit familiar with the concept of being like, man, the city's cool. I want to go to the city. That's where things are. We need to do things. But we're suburban kids. What are we supposed to do? You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and are you seeing the the older version of the punks on, on South Street when you're down there? You know what? I don't remember seeing that many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be because we were all so self-focused on ourselves. But I don't remember sitting there and ever... I don't remember ever looking in South, in, in South Street or anywhere in Philadelphia and being like, those are the punks, let's go meet them. Mm-hmm. All I remember um, is going to the city and saying, there are no punks, there are no shows, we have to do something. Mm-hmm. That's what. That's my memory of it. Um, because then, uh, to step back one thing, like, so I got into Fugazi. I go on a camping trip again for Boy Scouts. Now I'm in high school. I'm still in Boy Scouts, which again is one of those things. Where it's like, why am I still in Boy Scouts? What the fuck? I think in tenth grade, I, Chris O'Neill and I finally said, let's stop playing with GI Joe figures <laughs> and try and get a girlfriend. Uh-huh. So that was the first time we actually tried to do that. Um, but we went to a camping trip, and my and TJ brought this cassette of a band called Minor Threat. And I didn't know, and we put it on, and I was like, that sounds like the singer from Fugazi. And he's like, yeah, his name's Ian Mackay. The French guy. That's Ian Mackay. And then all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. Then uh, you're like, oh, that's like shit. These are bands, because again, at the same time, the only other band that I really ever thought of that had any sort of legacy was like Sex Pistols to PIL, mm-hmm. right? Every other band that I listened to, I don't think I ever had any history after. Like the Dead Kennedys stood by themselves. I didn't have anything of the that Jelly Offer went on and did anything You're not else. You're going to listen to a Lard record or something, right? Yeah. The same thing with the Ramones. The Ramones were just the Ramones. The Clash were the Clash, and then they broke up. They didn't go on and do anything else. Yeah. This is the first time I was like, oh, this is when when Ian McKay was a kid, and then he was in Fugazi, and then we met this kid named Haim uh, Kennick who came into our high school when we were in eleventh grade, and he was actually a true punk uh, aficionado. He had been a punk when he was young. He was now a mod. He had gone through the whole skin thing. He's now a mod. He, we met him because nobody liked him. He was like this, I mean, he looked like straight out of fucking like Quadrophenia. You know what I mean? Like that's what he looked like. And again, we just became friends with him at lunch. He brought us over to his house. He had stacks of record that we couldn't fucking believe. 
And from that point on, every day, he would bring us, he would make us cassette mixes. And I still have the first cassette mix that he made me, which had um, Dag Nasty, um, Swizz, you know, all of these bands. Because um, he was really into DC stuff, too. Mm-hmm. And my life just changed at that point. I was like, that's what I'm into. This is what I love. And I still remember, he would, we, he would give us a cassettes. Each cassette would have three songs by a band. He would do the writing on everything, give it to you. Uh-huh. It's this little package you get at lunch. You go home and listen to it, learn all the songs, figure out which bands you liked. Then he would record the whole album on the next cassette, so you have the whole record. Yeah, yeah. And then he would bring in, he would actually bring in the inserts that we would then go to the library and photocopy for five cents pop so we could all read the lyrics yeah, yeah, and great. take them home with you. Mm-hmm. And that's how we did it. And from there, it just becomes, well, you know, it, it just becomes all-consuming blob. You know, like, you can't listen to enough fucking music. It's just, just keep it coming. Just keep it, what did you listen to? Oh my God, did you hear this? Let's listen to this. You're listening to it in the car. You're going up to your bedroom and listening to it. And it's so very fucking exciting. You know, it's just so incredible. Every component of it is just, it's even cool when you listen to a band. It's like, I don't even like that band. All right, move on to that next one, you know? And it's so cool. And it's neat because at the time, there's no way to access this stuff. You've, it's like you've punched a hole through to something that you never even imagined existed, you know? Um, so that then started dictating how we were going musically, right? Our band was very much punk rock, and then we started writing kind of political songs. Um, the Tasmanians became kind of like a punk band and saying, you know, talking about the environment, about people who just drink for a living and do nothing else. You know, we have songs about, you know, that type of stuff, violence and all this shit. And we start sort of saying, well, you know what? While people in our high school don't treat us poorly, we don't actually like what they do, so we're going to separate ourselves from them. Because the one thing I feel like it's important when you're a kid to, to learn is you may not know who you are, but you definitely learn who you are. Mm-hmm. Like, it becomes very clear for some kids, I think, and I, th- I think for all kids, if they would admit it, what they're not. They look at somebody and say, that's not me. I don't like yeah, you that. You define yourself in opposition to that which Ex- you, exactly. you don't like. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And I think that's exactly what we did. And so we immediately shut off from everybody, which may have been a bad thing because it's kind of dicky, but all of our friends were like, well, you never, they never did us any harm, but we were like, we just didn't hang out with them anymore. We didn't talk to them. They weren't punks. Mm-hmm. They, didn't, they didn't live the lifestyle that we lived. And again, it, sh- it sheltered us even more. Like we were the small, close friends growing up. Then we kind of became part of a society, which is we were in school. And then we sheltered ourselves back down again and said, we're punks and we're just focusing on this. And we're absorbing music, absorbing this culture. Our politics are changing. Before, you know, in, in high school and middle school, there's maybe three or four black kids in our class. You know, so you'd hear kids yelling nigger before or all these crazy things, you know, faggot this or whatever that you never think about. Right. And the second you start hearing that, all of those things are going off in your head. And you're like, wait, yeah, it's totally fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're just... You're just fucking, no, no, get out, you know what I mean? Like, I am not for this. I don't like this. Um, and then we ended up going, we've met somebody who had a car who was older than us, who was in my brother's grade, two years above us, Mark Stroh. And he had a car, he was a punk, skater, and started taking us down to 3rd Street Jazz and Rock um, at the original location on 3rd Street when it was in the fucking basement. Uh-huh. And... I, again, I feel like I'm so, I, I hate, I will hate if I ever get Alzheimer's, obviously, but... <laughs> I still remember the day driving down in his fucking car. It was like winter, gray going down Kelly Drive, no leaves on the trees, you know. The, the river just looks depressing. 
driving into Old City when Old City at that time, I mean, 89 maybe, Old City still was just warehouses. At night, there was nothing there. It was actually a scary neighborhood. Yeah. And going downstairs and buying, and, and I mean, still being too tall to actually completely stand up. And again, I could draw the layout of the fucking thing. You know, you go down the steps and the records, uh, records right here, those are the punk ones, and then these are all the other ones. And and I remember I bought the Fugazi LP, the twelve, the the seven song twelve inch. That was the first thing I bought at Jazz, at Third Street Jazz. I had the cassette, but I wanted it on vinyl, and uh, and then that just became where we went. We went to the Third Street all the time, and you just bought anything that, like you said, what we were talking about before. You you miss the days when people curated things. You know, there were people would put something up and say, "This is from this. You need to check this record out." Yeah, and you take it home. And the cool thing was, it's not like today. And I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but you know. Now you can listen to a song and very easily decide whether you want to actually buy the thing. Yeah. Then it's like you have to take a fucking risk. And you have a very finite amount of money. So totally. it's, a, it's a serious investment if you're going to buy this record. Totally. In that it's the kind of thing that you like. Yeah. And, and then you know, based upon like what the, the song titles are, what the dude's uh-huh. hair looks like, or what Patcher's on his uh, you know, jacket in the back cover or something. I remember buying the Witch Trials uh, EP. It had it on the front. Featuring Jello Biafra. Yeah. And, and the Witch Trials cover looks fucking cool as shit. It's scary. It's, yeah. I was like, oh, I can't listen to this. What did <laughs> I buy? You know? like. And so that was an amazing time. So, like, yeah, that, and that's when we started doing all that. And then um, all of this was happening simultaneously as we were changing our band. Um, TJ was playing guitar. Um, Ron didn't have the best voice. So, of, as kids do, we kicked him out of the band. Mm-hmm. Um, Haim who had basically I consider my punk rock grandfather uh, or godfather however you were raised to bring it up um, knew this guy named Ralph Darton and he played in a band with him uh, it was a it was a ska band because Hyam was really into ska music so they were called the Grooving Grooving it was groove, Grooving Machine Come on, don't get Alzheimer's yet <laughs> dude it was so fun. it was such a great name it was hysterical but he said hey we broke up I don't know why they broke up but he said but my friend Ralph is a great singer um, you should try him out so he came over and watched us secretly practice one time at Niles Martin's house um, and again I have a photograph of the time that I actually first met Ralph and that thing which is again one of those crazy documents and when um, we talked afterwards he's like I love the band he's like you know and the next week, we were playing um, the Battle of the Bands at Springfield High School, our high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ralph was going to come. So all the punk kids that we knew, which at the time had grown to a, a huge group of about 15 in our high school. There was 15 of us. Ron. Uh, which is a lot for us. For tons. High school. Yeah, tons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole, because at the time, at like 80, 88, 89, it's all metal, right? It's oh, Guns yeah. and Roses. It's all this stuff. So, I mean, the... I remember in our cafeteria, like, we sat in this little spot, like, there was, like, 15 of us, and over there were all these fucking metalheads with huge teased hair, like, you know, it was, like, a huge thing, it was amazing. They were troublemakers and insane, and we were like, oh. Um, So, uh, Ralph comes to see us play the Battle of the Bands, and um, it goes well, we don't win. I think we were going to win, like, $100 or some shit like that, you know? And... Ralph says he wants to, he would sing in the band, so we kick Ron out. And then we change our name to The Random Children, which is, um, Ralph starts singing. Turns out that Ralph goes to Kappa, which is what, the creative college? Performing Arts College in Philadelphia. Right. I can't remember what the hell it stands for. Yeah. Um, that's in the city. Whoa, that's fucking crazy. We now know. Well, first of all, let's, say, let's go back and be completely black. Ralph's black, uh-huh. which is, we don't have any black friends, you know, like, 
not that we were we just didn't grow up with anybody that we became friends with you know like we were never exposed to it so right there we're like feeling like this is a good step for us like it just it, it just feels like we're expanding our horizons which which is what we want to do at that time right we're you know we're just learning everything he lives in Mount Airy, which is a suburb, but not as suburban as, as, as where we live. Mm-hmm. And he goes to school on South Broad Street, which we've driven by a couple times. It's pretty fucking weird down there. Uh-huh. So Ralph opens up this whole new universe. And then he starts singing, and he can actually sing. I mean, he can carry a tune, like, way more than any of us could imagine. Um, so we start writing like crazy. And, and Ralph then all of a sudden is like, I know people in the city. We should play a show. Haim is now in a new band called the Mad Planets, which is a mod band or whatever. And uh, we play a show at what was called the Old City Arcade. Um, I still have the little piece of paper that ha- in Haim's handwriting that he wrote the address for because we had no idea where we were going. Where you was know, it? It was mm-hmm. on uh, the, right next to the Continental at Second and Market. Okay. If you go to if you go to Continental Second Market and head south on the east side, there are these three buildings that are completely abandoned and have been abandoned for years. They've never done anything since then. It was in one of those buildings. It was just this little arcade with like a couple of things, a couple of video games, and that was it. Uh, we played there with the Mad Planets and um, a couple other bands. And what year is this? This is 1990, I want to say. 89 or 90, but I think it's 1990. Mm-hmm. It is, because the following year is when we play, we, we end up playing with Fugazi and stuff like that, and that's 91. So we play like 1990. It's the first time we play in the city. We now feel like holy shit, we were playing in the city, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. we're juniors in high school. Yeah, we're probably juniors. No, sophomores. We're sophomores in high school. It's a huge deal. Huge fucking deal. Um, we play, there's a fight, which is insane, you know? Like, yeah. what the fuck? We drive down there in Greg's mom's car. Um, and it's just a fucking blast. And we start playing a couple shows here and there, sort of, again, in Mount Airy, Germantown, in the city. Uh, there's a show at a place called the Montserrat on South Street, which was a restaurant. Uh, a fella named um, who you interviewed. Um, why am I blanking out? Chuck Meehan. Oh, Chuck. Yeah. Um, he runs this thing called Kickstart TV. I know nothing about it. We're suburban kids. Ralph knows about it. Ralph knows this guy named Imposi, who's this huge, 15 foot tall African American dreadlock photographer. Yeah. Who no, goes no. everywhere and knows everybody. Yeah. And uh, they get us on the show with Kickstart TV. Um, and we play, and and it's incredible. The show is sold out. It's packed. There's only four bands. Um, it's upstairs. Someone lights. Someone breaks a mace canister open, and nobody can see. And it truly actually feels dangerous. Like it's like this is fucking nuts, you know. And at this time, you know, we're still expanding our own music vocabulary. Like we're we're listening to all the DC bands now. Like that whole the whole idea of Discord. Touch and go and look out are now completely wide open on our minds. We understand the concept of running your own record label, community of music and people working together to better their own neighborhoods and making their community lively and active outside of trying to play anywhere else. Um, so we decide, well, we got to do two things. We have to release a record somehow and we have to put on our own all ages shows. And that's what we have to do. So I've always been kind of a type A personality. So we start deciding, like, okay, well, how are we going to run a label? So we start writing to Discord, to Simple Machines, and harassing all these people. How do you do this? And they're very patient. They give us this information. Mm-hmm. Um, we contact this place down on South Street called Dobbs, where Ralph has been barbacking at. And this woman named Kathy James, um, for 
some reason allows us to book Sunday all ages shows. I don't know why. I don't know how we convinced her to do it. I don't know what the impetus for her was, other than just maybe like, oh, what the hell? Who cares? The space is empty anyway. Um, and we start booking matinee shows for local bands. And um, at, on Sunday afternoon, starting at like 2 o'clock. They go from like, you get to start at 2, you have to be out by 6, because the show at night has to start at like 8 o'clock or something like that. Mm-hmm. The shows are like 30 people in Dobbs. It's this tiny little you know bar and it's no wider than this room mm-hmm. you know there's no, nothing there it's the afternoon on a Sunday on South Street um, it was at sec- it was at 3rd and Mar- third and South it's still there it reopened again and uh, we started doing those shows and then we started calling bands from DC having them come up and play we'd have Jawbox come up and play um, Circus Lupus uh, we had Green Day play one time when they were actually can play in that space you know mm-hmm. uh, and that's just kind of like what we started to do and 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 we then decided, well, we're going to have to start a record label then, too. The same way that Discord did it, we're going to do the same thing. So we all of us chip in money, and we put out a split 7-inch with the Random Children and the Mad Planets. And we got it printed at United Record Press, and we learned how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fucking disaster, because nobody knows how to put together a cover. Nobody explains you, pre-computers, how do you put together a cover so it actually looks like a record cover. Uh-huh. Nobody's, what's the name of the label, but called Elbowhead. Mm-hmm. And what is the reason why? <laughs> we name it Elbowhead because Greg, who basically is going to run the label with me, uh, goes to LaSalle High School and they've got a teacher there that they call Elbowhead because he was bald and he had all these liver spots on his head and they said his el- head looked like an elbow. So they called him Elbowhead. For some reason, I thought that was such a non sequitur that I was like, that should be the name of the label. And that's what it becomes. Um, we put that 7-inch out. We print up 300. I have the cover printed at this print offset printing place at the top of my street in Orland. I mean, it's they were printing stuff probably like for like Mad Men era shit, you know, like <laughs> um, the recording's done at Niles Martin's house with no mastering. It sounds horrible. It's like the worst recording I've ever heard, you know, <laughs> but we did it. I mean, but the thing is, ultimately, we send this little quarter inch reel to reel tape to Nashville in the mail. Mm-hmm. We write a letter that says we want to make this into a record. Here's $495 or whatever the hell the cost was. Yeah. Could you please engrave these words into the what you call the matrix? I remember <laughs> I remember calling Nashville and asking, saying, hey, in these LPs that I have, I see this writing. What is that? Oh, that's called the matrix. Oh, okay. So if I ask you to write something, yeah, we'll just carve that in. Oh, great. So I send that off. And what do you want carved in the matrix? I don't even remember Eat now. the blue pill. Oh, I wish. I wish. Or God, I wish I recorded this better. I don't remember what the hell we wrote. I'll have to look at their 7-inch at some point. I think I just did it because Discord did it. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's so cool. It's personalized. It's neat. Um, but that, but the amazing thing was then three weeks later, this box arrived and they were like our seven inches. You know, yeah, you this, have created a thing. Yeah, yeah, with a sticker on it. Like, and I can put it on my turntable and that and plays. You know, like. Yeah, what other teenagers not involved in the punk scene are creating something like right. that? I mean, it's always, to me, it's one of the most amazing things is that you become such self-starters that you actually create something. It's, in effect, a piece of art. Even if it's a crappy piece of art, it's fucking, it's something. Totally. Versus the nothing that, that other people were probably producing. Absolutely. And, and again, and, and not, I don't mean to say this because I don't want to sound like, a, you know, a, oh, it's so much better back then or different back then. But the reality is, even at that time, you, you couldn't you, if you want to talk to somebody you had to write a letter and wait for them and hopefully they would, they would write you back and give you information you know Kristen Thompson was such a sweetheart from uh, from Simple Machines because she took time to write that back and say here's how you want to put a record out yeah. you know 
you nowadays the amazing thing is that the entry level, the entry bar is so low that you can you can really accomplish so much now, you know. But at that time, it's like you were just stabbing in the dark, you know. And it it's amazing. I mean, honestly, it's it's amazing that anything got done. Yeah, you know, yeah. but it like, teaches you a certain tenacity, which I think right. is a really good attribute for anybody to have. You learn a process, right? You learn to achieve the process. Yeah, and I think that that's a good. I mean, you kind of take that forward. Yeah, it was nuts. It was crazy. It was so incredible to just be like, wow. And you're doing shows, you know, so you're organizing, you know, there's money, there's equipment, there's yeah. dealing with, uh, you know, folks at the, at J.C. Dobbs. Yeah. Yeah. I so. remember, I remember the, the show at Dobbs. Yeah. You call Kathy and say, Kathy, can we play this show? We want to have Fracture um, and Jawbox play. It was banned from D.C. They had sent us a 7-inch, you know, like, and that's the weird thing, too. You start booking shows and all of a sudden people are sending you 7-inches in the mail because they want to play your show. Like, I remember getting, I remember getting Jawbox's 7-inch before I'd ever heard Jawbox. I remember getting... Uh, a cassette tape from this band called Unwound, mm-hmm. a demo tape, and I was like, well, whatever, maybe they can play or whatever. You know, and you look back now, and you're like, that's so amazing. We yeah. were all doing this at the same time. You know, um, I remember Jawbox wanted a hundred and fifty dollar guarantee, and at the time we were like, holy fuck, how are we going to fucking pay hundred and fifty bucks <laughs> to this band? Yeah. You know, it's incredible. It's like a mind fuck. Um, so then, yeah, so Elbowhead continues. Uh, Elbowhead, we we do the same thing. We agree that the money that goes into the record. Anything that we sell will just go right back into making another record. And the, and the, very quickly we learned, well, we don't know what the fuck we're doing. You know, like, money gets lost. You don't know who bought what. So then we quickly adjust. We change gear. We say, okay, how about this? Elbowhead will exist as a label to put something out so it creates a community. If a band wants a 7-inch to come out, they pay for the recording. Elbowhead will pay for the printing and handle, like, advertising if we do anything. So, you know, you start sending ads to Maximum Rock and Roll and things like that. So then Fracture does a 7-inch. Um, their first seven inch was was amazing. Again, you, you accom- so I guess if you well to take it back. Just a oh sure. Bit, I guess you've reacquainted yourself with Adam. And, oh, and then like the fracture guys are you know, coming up at the same time. Yes, right. So okay, you're right. Um, as we were in when Ralph joined the Tasmanians and became the Random Children, and we and we were starting to play shows with Ralph. Um, this kid that went to school with us named Matt Lieberman was another one of those extended arms that like was a year below us and was kind of getting into punk too. He never became a true, like a full on punk, but he was alternative enough to be like hang with the punks, if, mm-hmm. you know, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he randomly says, do you guys know somebody named Adam Gorin? And we're like, yeah, of course we know Adam Gorin. He lives across the street from me. Now, why we never ever crossed, I mean, it's funny to think that Adam and I grew up, Adam, Greg, Paul, Chris, and Ron and I all grew up within a mile of each other, right? I mean, I, we could easily walk to all of our houses. Right. Adam leaves in fourth grade, goes to a private school. We never talked to him again. It's not like Adam moved. It's not like Adam, he was right in the same spot, but we never saw him. Right. We never crossed paths. He says, oh, he lives across the street from me. Oh, you live across the street from Adam? Yeah. He, why don't, Matt says, why don't we have a show at, in my basement, I'm playing in a band with Adam. They're called um, Pleasant Green or some other ridiculous name. We all have ridiculous names, obviously. Um, <laughs> let's play a show in my basement. Of course, we'll play anywhere because there's no, at the time, we still haven't been playing, we didn't start playing down the city yet. So we play in his basement and Adam's there. And Adam's a metalhead. He loves, you know, loves Megadeth. He's got this super long, curly, uh, <laughs> pseudo 
devil lock, but more like a flock of seagulls, like spillage of oh, hair out here. So good. It was unbelievable. <laughs> With a backwards baseball cap, glasses, and and we of course give him a hard time because I don't know why, but we're just like you know, I think we feel like we treat him almost like he's uh, our friend long lost friend that we can just jump right back into and tease him so we give him a hard time we were, and I think Adam thought we were going to beat him up I think when we came there he thought we were going to actually beat him up because he thinks that we didn't like him or some oh, other thing I, I wish I should have Adam remind me what the story was because he didn't he felt nervous right then it was like we never missed a beat though from that point on inseparable again and Boom! Adam's in the group. Is he sitting on your lap again? No, not not quite. <laughs> but but we are but we are super friends. You know what I mean? Like it, it's amazing, like how you can share something with somebody and just get right back into it. And our group then it grows a little bit more. And you know we start driving around. He still is going to a private school, but every night and on the weekends we all just hang around. We drive around Springfield Township, hanging out, and that's what we do. Adam then um, that band that he's in, Pleasant Green, breaks up, um, and. Jeb Bell, who was a year below us and played in that band called Vile with a couple guys, that band breaks, Vile breaks up and they want to start a new band. Well, Jeb Bell, Chris O'Neill, who's my best friend, and Adam and Jeb's bro- uh, brother Rob create this band called Fracture and they start playing. So they go through a several, they become basically our sister band. You know, we're playing with them all the time. Um, they have two singers. The one leaves, and you know it's a very, very organic situation at that time. And then I, and then basically what ends up happening is, eleventh grade random children plays with Fugazi. This is going to be the most amazing experience yes. of, of anybody's life yes. of any age. We had by this point, random children had put out two seven inches. Fracture had formed and solidified into a band. Mark Scott has now joined. I don't even remember how we met Mark Scott in any way, shape, or form, but somehow Mark has joined. Um, they're now a full-fledged five-piece band that's playing down at Dobbs uh, on our matinee shows and playing some shows. Random children are playing. We're writing scene reports for Maximum Rock and Roll. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, doing, we're doing everything that we think we could possibly do to create some sort of punk community in Philadelphia. Because, and I tell this all the time, when we used to go down to Philadelphia, go to the record stores, I, I like we said before, I never saw any punks. I know they were there. I, I, I would say like they were there somewhere, but we never saw them. Mm-hmm. So we always sort of felt like there was this window of the '80s where there was a, there was some punk McRad, Pagan Babies, Ruin, all these bands that played, and then they were like they were gone. And for us, we feel like we just popped in and never heard or heard of it. We all heard of those bands later. Mm-hmm. We were just like, oh, we have to do our own. There's no scene here, man. We got to create one. It was almost like we thought we had to discover a scene, which of course we hadn't. I think that the things had kind of dried up a bit at that time, and it was time for new folks to come in. That those that the previous generation had kind of you know gone and gone had separated directions. or something. Yeah, yeah. So there needed to be somebody coming in to do yeah, think, of stuff in a different way. Because I think the only thing I was ever familiar with that was actually current in the city was Rave Records. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't know anybody of them. And Fuck that weak shit. Yeah, exactly. I bought my first real bass amp from Rave Records, though. 215 cab with beer and puke all over it. It's awesome. <laughs> punk. It's fucking punk as shit. But no, we didn't know anything about them. You know, for all we knew, we were just they were just like these, you know, old head punks that didn't care anymore because we didn't know them. So, we, like I said, we were doing everything we possibly do to think that we were creating a, a scene. And 
through Ralph, through Dobbs, more people started showing up. Now, that means going from 25 people at a show to 50 people at a show, which was, again, phenomenal and huge. And we started to actually meet people. Um, another group of my friends that I met that were in this band in Philadelphia called True High Fidelity that uh, we would go on and do some stuff with in another record label, they started coming to shows and we met them th through that. Um, so the scene started to like sort of gel in that way. We made lifelong friends there. Um, but we just were kind of cruising along doing that. And then Ralph calls me one night. And I remember, again, exactly where I was. <laughs> I was sitting on my bed in my be small bedroom at my parents' house. And he says, I got to tell you something. Ralph and I had become very friendly. You know, we're in the band. You know, we're close again. We're, we're close now and everything. And I, Are you sitting down? Yeah. We just got asked to play with Fugazi. I yell. <laughs> see, like it's Christmas. Because at this point by now, Discord is everything to me. Everything to me. I am going to. This is back in the late '80s, early '90s when Discord released a one record every month, and for me, from that time of probably about '85 until probably '91, every one of those records is fucking important and amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Every record that came out, what's the new Discord record? Take it, buy it. You know what I mean? Like, I can everyone. Doesn't matter what it is, I'm buying it. We're gonna play with, with Fugazi. Holy fucking shit! Um, this is at Drexel. This is at Drexel. Yeah. Um, apparently, some again, somebody. But and this is an amazing thing for a kid who's a junior, you know, and just learned to drive. You know, it's like somebody likes your band enough that they're gonna have you play a show at Drexel University with your favorite band, and they're expecting about two thousand people to be there. Yeah, yeah. So like you can't. I mean, I, I, I couldn't even wrap my mind around it. So. We go into hyperspeed, writing material, practicing, making flyers, advertising. Um, we play, and it's it's amazing. You know, it's it's everything that you could you could hope it to be. Um, I videotape it myself. Oddly, as a, as a side, I found a video on YouTube of that Fugazi show, and I see myself in the video filming it, That's which is cool. amazing to me to be like, wow, what a doc, what an odd document to see yourself filming something that was so important to you at that time. Yeah. You know, like I look at my parents now, it's like how many things my parents experienced that they don't have a document of. And now we live in this time where you can actually have these documents forever. I don't know whether it's good or bad, but it's cool. It's good. It's cool. It's always good to document. Yeah, it's yeah. neat, you know? So we play. It's amazing. It's an amazing experience. But I think by that time, we sort of start changing our opinion on the music we should be playing. And Random Children very quickly realizes that what we're playing is an older style of punk. And what we want to play is a contemporary version of punk rock that we're seeing coming out of D.C., bands like Fugazi, all of these things that we want to do. So once again, we kick somebody out of the band. We kick TJ out because he's, we consider his guitar playing to be archaic. <laughs> he sounds like Johnny Thunders to be the devil incarnate. Um, Poor guy. Yeah, it was a shame. Ralph really wants to play guitar. We're all very, very, very moved by Fugazi. I mean, we really are. Like Greg, Ralph, and I are just completely, that's what we should be doing. At this time, also, Jawbreaker releases a song on the This Is Hardcore comp. You remember that comp? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is so weird that Jawbreaker's on it. Yeah. But they have that song, Rich, which is off the off the recording. It's a demo of the first recording from Unfun. And I never had heard anything that sounds like that song. And I remember sitting in the car at Niall's house where we used to practice with Ralph and saying, this is the kind of music we should be playing. 
Because it just sounded so new to me. Yeah, this like, is the birth were... of true emo. Right. Like, this is this is the future right. direction. Exactly. Which, and you were right. That was the direction to go in. So we yeah. So we kicked TJ out, and we say, well, we're going to Greg Ralph is going to sing, going to play guitar. We write one song as the random children called "Listen" that Ralph plays guitar on. TJ only plays a lead on it because we're going to we were Elbowhead was going to release a Philadelphia comp, a twelve inch comp, was going to be our big thing. Get all these bands together. I'm so glad we didn't because none of us were ready to do it. It would have been a document that would have been like, oh, you guys should have taken it back to the basement for a little bit, you know? Um, TJ's pissed because he's not playing the lead. He doesn't like the song. We love it. It sounds totally different. And that's the end of that. And we start playing immediately in senior year in the spring of 1992. The band, uh, tra- random show breaks up and we immediately start practicing as this band called Franklin. Now, what was the meaning of Franklin? Absolutely nothing. Okay. We picked Franklin because Franklin was the name of the token black kid in the Peanuts. <laughs> um, and we used to joke all the time that they just had this fucking token black kid in the Peanuts that never got any attention, never, barely said a word, and we were going to bring attention to this kid and just be called Franklin. And we're going to honor him in that no, way. So there is a meaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, it's, but not, it's not like, you know. Um, so that was the mindset. And we immediately get to set to the idea of totally changing everything about what we thought music was going to be. We decide that Franklin's going to be this art music piece that Franklin would write and record songs. And, re- and they would exist. But when we played live, it would be a completely kinetic, experimental, uh, improvisational experience where noise, sound, whatever happened, nothing could go wrong. So very quickly we start playing and we just spend all of our time on the floor throwing our guitars, making noise. Um, but people respond to it, you know, like people like it. And, and we decide to ourselves that we're going to record within the first three months of writing songs. So we write our first four songs and immediately go and record. We're just like, fuck this, don't overthink anything. Just go and document it, record it, and that's what we do. Um, and that's kind of like where Franklin started. Ralph was living at 10th and Pine in a house. He lived in the basement, and we shacked up. That summer, we graduated high school in 92. That summer, we lived in Ralph's basement, we lived in Ralph's basement and just practiced all the time. And... Um, that's when Fracture then became Rob Bell, Jeb's brother, who was a bass player. Fracture, he left the band, or they kicked him out. They got a new drummer named Paul Severin, who was a much more punk kind of drummer. And all of a sudden, Fracture takes off in this developmental stage. And like their creativity is less derivative and much more amazing. you know. And we were playing shows together, and Franklin and Fracture are sort of reborn. Even though Fracture's been around already for like a year and a half, mm-hmm. it's completely new. And we're playing shows, and we start playing, and we're all still playing J.C. Dobbs. And it's funny, I, I would love to imagine, if anybody cared, I would love to see, like, Random Children plays one time, and, like, three months later, it's Franklin, and we look like totally different people. We've shaved our heads, our clothes are completely different, our antics, our sound, everything has changed, you know? Because we just finally, like, allow ourselves to just, this is what we want to do. This is the growth we want to go into. Um, and then we go to college. Our bass player... At the time was this woman named Stravula Criticos who lived across the street from Ralph. She did not know how to play the bass. We thought that was what was so fucking cool. Um, she would play. She would stand behind things so nobody could see her. Um, but she decides she goes. she's going to go to American University. So she records a demo with us 
and then goes to school, and we all go to school. Adam, me, all of our friends that had grown up, and that was a kind of a, a really critical time, I think. I really, like, we were all friends from such an early age that we graduated 12th grade, had become so embedded in music and everything that we did, and when that band, when that, when we all went to college, I think we all truly thought that our friendships may be over, which was totally terrifying. You know, I remember us sitting in the high school parking lot the, the night before three of us, I think, went to school, and we all cut, we cut the, the um, strings off of one of those beaded seat backs. Remember the, in the oh, seats? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Supposed to massage you or something? Yeah, they felt horrible. We cut them, and we took this, the, this rubber la uh, lanyard, and we made little necklaces out of those beads, and everyone got one, and we all took it to college with us, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was really like we were breaking up, and it was amazing. Like we were all like crying, you know. Like it was—I mean, we were so close to each other, you know. And you yeah. could imagine not seeing each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to Baltimore because I really wanted to get closer to DC. Um, Franklin stayed in act act activity, and everyone—all the band stayed, but we all just, just you know went our own ways for that while. Um, but it was such a cool creative time because then Fracture sends me this recording. Adam sends me a tape a tape cassette of their. Double distal, distal Fink 7-inch. Um, and there I go. There was the first time where I actually felt jealous of my friends. In a good way. Right. I was like, whoa. They just fucking blew our pants <laughs> off with that. Because we had... I think... Yeah, we did. Franklin had, re had released our, our first official 7-inch by that time. On this record label called Slug Sounds. From Westchester. And then Fracture released their 7-inch. And we were like, holy shit. And then it just became like battling back and forth, like who's recording what and mm -hmm. doing all that stuff, you know. But oh god, I feel like I've just gone through a a zone of blabber. Um, yeah, it was crazy. So you wound up touring, uh, right? As as Franklin, yes, degree? yeah, okay, yeah, no. Um, well, that was then the the logical step we were all writing we're all playing we're playing more than ever we're going we're learning to, how to book shows book your own fucking life exists now from maximum rock and roll which is a huge help we're getting contacts i have a phone book by my bed that i write in all these contacts which is so funny I remember having an address book and all that stuff yeah. and desperately trying to get shows so fraction franklin are completely like sister bands we're just together all the time we're best friends we play as many shows together as possible and we all sit down and say at this time when stavula has left to go to american american university in dc we play a show um before she leaves at tyler university which is uh, temple university's art school here in philadelphia and the kid who put the show on is this kid named roy binion who was from westchester um punk kid was running a distro which we didn't really know anything about. Mm -hmm. And he bought records and sold them. And holy shit, how cool is that, you know? Um, turns out he loves our band. Um, loves a song that we do called Michael and says it's his favorite song. And Ralph, of course, is like, if anybody's ever met Ralph Darden, knows Ralph will talk to anybody and become best friends with anybody. Mm -hmm. They're best friends. And he says, Roy will play bass. He plays bass. So we're like, great, you're in. No practice, no whatever. You're in the band. And then I think we really become like a real band. We start really writing songs like that I still feel like fit the time. Like we were kids and we were really creating. I feel really proud of what we did then. Mm -hmm. um, Roy at that time is a very, well he still is, but he's a very anal, very driven person. He becomes the, the band bookkeeper. He keeps everything. He tracks letters, seven inches, what sells, what comes in. 
Uh, and we decide, hey, we need to go on tour. This is what the next step is. Um, so that is the summer of 1994. We're all in college. We're all talking via letters. We're mailing each other letters left and right and, saying, and talking on the phone saying, this summer we're going on tour. Roy and Adam are put in charge of booking it. They get book your own fucking life. They create a path that makes sense. Um, Roy builds a dialer, which if anybody doesn't know is uh, – at the time, for pay phones, there's a little tool device called a dialer that would have a little crystal that you would send away for. You could put it in this device and you'd hold up to the phone, you dial in a code, and it would ring to the tone of the quarter going into the phone. You have a free long distance. We get a dialer and we spend, well, they spend, but we hang out with them while they're on the phone. Roy goes to school with Tyler and he lives across the street in the development called Linwood Gardens. So we spend all of our time there hanging out. It's like a flop house. Adam and Roy spend all their time while we're hanging out, chilling, listening to records, practicing. They walk over to Tyler into the, um, the student union or whatever the hell you would call it um, and use the dial, dialer to call all these things to book these shows. You know, the dialer should be put at like Planet Hollywood. Like I agree. For the 90s, you know, this thing to find underground music for oh, this period of years. Yeah. Everybody had that goddamn yeah. thing and did so much with it. How, it's a compl- I think it's a completely alien concept to folks now, but the dialer defined uh, like the 1990s. And the Kinko's copy card. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Exactly. How many shows were you paid with using a Kinko's copy card? Or No, God, everything yeah. was done with a dialer. Everything. Yeah. It was the greatest thing ever. Yes. Um, so Adam and Roy spend their entire time trying to book this tour, and it does not happen. Nobody wants to see our band. Nobody's heard of our band. They don't give a shit. So we're like, well, I guess we're not going on tour. That summer, our tour instead is Greg Giuliano, myself, Adam, and Chris O'Neill. We go on a road trip to, like, Graceland, Memphis, and all these places. It's like, well, if we're not going on tour, we're going somewhere. So we drive around the country for, for a week. The next year, we go back to school. We continue doing what we're doing. We record, do play shows when we can and all that stuff. And... Uh, 95, we try again, and it's successful this time. We were able to book a tour um, across country, uh, and it's a three-week tour that will take us from Philadelphia to San Francisco to Pensacola, Florida, back to Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So, again, I don't know how many people listening would have driven the United States but three weeks is not a lot of time no. to do those, that. that a- now, you could go across and back maybe in a straight shot in two weeks and just really be kind of like, okay. But when you're, you're talking... Kind of like, a, like a triangle, right? Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> yes. So the, the, the first experience that we had... So here's what we do. Franklin says we need a van because every band needs a van. And we're... I feel like Franklin's kind of like the... The oldest child, almost, in the, the group of bands that yeah. are our friends. So we have to get a van. We can't have like we can't borrow mom's car. We have to get a van. So Roy and I find a van for seven hundred dollars, a nineteen seventy seven Chevy Nomad, which ends up being the most favorite vehicle that I've ever owned. It's incredible. Roy fixes it up into like a living, like a, a mobile living room. Mm-hmm. Has this huge plush orange couch, thick. Thick carpet on the floor. He builds a loft that has a case in it, so it's secure, so you can't get into it. And and you know anybody that's, that grew up in the '90s or anything, it's like when you're in a when you when you buy a van, the the time that you spend to build that van into a touring 
Ban van is like the greatest thing. You're yeah, thinking, and it breaks down. Well, yeah, and immediately, right? But it's Philadelphia. but it's stylish. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the first time we took the van out, we drove to Wilkesbury to play, and it broke down, blew a water hose or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's like so we missed the show. We're like, fuck this. Why did we buy this van? So we now decide at after we bought this van, a 1977 van. It's 1995, so it's a rather old vehicle. Yes. Um, we put all this work into it. We're going to drive this fucker across the country. Um, the trip is from, we go from, the first shows are Philadelphia, State College, easy drive. Bad. State College, Indianapolis, not bad. Indianapolis to Columbus, mm, not so bad. Columbus to Denver, <laughs> which is like, holy shit, because uh-huh. that's overnight. Denver to Salt Lake City, which is like, what the fuck? <laughs> Salt Lake City to San Francisco. Oof. That yeah. hurts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then it was like... Down, down to uh, Los Angeles, then over through Texas. It was just insane. But we do it. We play, I think it's uh, 21 days, and I think we ended up playing, uh, I think we only had two days off, 19 shows. And immediately you realize like how amazing touring is, and, and you realize that it's not amazing because you're in a band touring. You're ma- you realize that you're on, you're on the road with your best friends, having experiences that you'll never, ever have again. And it's you guys against the world. Yes. This is almost like your time to join the army because Correct. you're not at war with everybody else, but you're definitely a cohesive unit. Correct. You're a machine. Alien territory. Yep. Yeah. Every day is, and, that, and that's the thing is, every single day is a new complication. Every yeah. single day is a new, like, how do we solve this problem? And you're right. We always just say that the, the thing that's the most exciting part about it is that you get in that van and your entire life is in that van. Everything. You know, no matter what you do, it has to be in that van because we're moving. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And like you said, it's you against the world. And and when you drive through the night in four different shifts and you don't stop because you're going to keep the... We actually had a van that had cruise control, which is amazing. Keep the cruise control on and I'm going to crawl out from the seat with my hands on the steering wheel and you're going to crawl under so we can st- still keep going 65 miles an hour. And you drive 12 hours to your show and you play kids are there you sell a couple records a couple t-shirts and you pack up you succeeded yeah. and you feel amazing that you've done it and this you, is great shit for young folks yeah. to do i mean this is yeah yeah this is it's really, it's everything it's mm-hmm. everything um and then there's that weird feeling you know when you come back from tour you feel so sad you know which is such a strange thing you know like you think you go away and it's such a brutal lifestyle you know you sleep on because then you know that nobody we got paid that, t- that first tour, the best money that we made was we played a show in San Francisco with Swing Kids and like three other bands. Um, best check that we got, best amount of money we got paid was 50 bucks at that show. 50 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So you could pay 20 bucks, 30 bucks, but you didn't even care. You sleep on floors. You can't sleep in hotels. We didn't even bring pillows. We just had whatever. Adam and I... Yeah, you have your sweatshirt. Right? Yeah. I think Adam and I shared a, a sleeping bag. We just zip out and just lay on it, you know? And, um, and you know, you're not eating well because we're all, at that time, we're vegetarian, but we don't know how to make anything. So we just eat French fries, Taco Bell cheese. Yeah, exactly. Uh, vegetarian Whoppers or whatever. Yeah. You're smoking, which, you know, you're killing yourself. We didn't drink. That's one thing that's probably safe. We're smoking grass occasionally. You're just living horribly, you know? And fortunately, at that age, at you know, 18 years old, you can do it. Yeah. But you would think coming home, you'd be like, thank God I'm home. But you come home and, it's, and you're miserable. 
Because you just realize, and I think you realize it very quickly, like, you just had one of the most intense, beautiful, amazing experiences that you'll ever have. You're aware of every minute. Yeah, you know, right. Like, every minute is making an impression because you have to kind of be on all of your cylinders yeah. all the time. And at home, you can kind of just kind of drift through and, you know, where did the day go? But when you're on tour, every day is event. And it's exciting, too, because the thing is, every day you're looking out the window and looking at something you've never seen before. I mean, you're literally... I mean, yeah, you're, so it looks like a moonscape. Exactly. And you've got a big, vast forest, you know? Exactly. I mean, the thing is, you're driving, you're driving through the night. You're talking to your, your best friend, and you're talking about everything under the sun. You're having these intense conversations just to pass the time that end up being some of the best conversations you've ever had, you know? With, yeah. you know and really getting to the root of these things and, and learning things from each other and loving each other and hating each other and b building these bonds that... And again, for us, because we were so lucky that we had known each other for so long, that it even further deepened that love of each other that it's just like, my mm. God, like how much deeper can this relationship go, you know? But it seems endless at those times. So you get you stop at the night. You're, and I remember it's like you know you're driving. There's two vans going, and everyone's asleep except for the two drivers. And you one driver pulls off to so have to pee, and then you, those two drivers sit there, and it's just, everyone's asleep. You're under the stars. You're in the middle of Idaho, nothing around, and you both just sit there and you just hang out. It's like this is incredible, you know. And it's and it's a funny thing is because that's where I think I think that's where like this idea of like emo becomes like a beautiful thing. That I think I, I truly feel like I experienced that is unfortunate that became bastardized into this weird, awful other thing. Yeah, yeah. Because when I think of that time of all of that, you know, because we would then go on to, to tour each summer is what we would do. Fracture and Franklin then went on tour again in 1995. And then Fra Franklin would go on tour again in 96 and then 97. And every summer and every winter during school break, we would go on tour. Um, but my God, it's just like, you know, that those experiences each time was just a never-ending um, mindfuck. Each trip, you know, like, it never got boring. It never got uninteresting. And I think it's because of that. I think it's because it was such a challenge, you know. I think now, like, if you were to go on tour now and you had, like, these nice plush bands, you have computers to use, you have phones. Yeah. You could be, like you said... You can be disengaged from it. You can let the day slip away from you, you know? Oh, but, yeah, you begin sending text messages and you're in outer space yeah. and you've missed the weird environments that you've right. moved through and everything and the disconnect from people back at home. Totally. Yeah, and that's, yeah, I mean, that's, I remember coming home and just being like, not wanting to see any of my other friends because, like, you don't know what I've just been through. Yeah, yeah. I've just had this transcendental experience and you can't possibly relate because you weren't there. Yeah. I don't want, I can't even, I, I'm so depressed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's crazy, but yeah, I mean, but I, you know, for me, like that whole e that time of quote unquote emo was that it was not this like fake, um, you know, crying on stage thing that people like to joke about anymore. Like to me, that idea was was uh, this true experience of like five or six years of just truly connecting with people around me or like my close friends in such a way that. It's hard to describe, you know? Like, it's hard to even explain. Yeah, I think there was a tremendous kinetic intensity and, and honesty yeah. to all of that. I think so, too. And that's yeah. the thing. is like, leading up to then when we ended up getting expanding even more and meeting, like, the Cabbage Collective folks and all that stuff and playing 48th in Baltimore and stuff. And all that, you, you just felt that. You felt this, like, similarity that yeah, just, like... Yeah, all of these people... Yeah. All seemed to be plugged into the same thing, and, and it was a positive thing, right? And it, and the, the thing was, was really cool. It was it was a deep 
there was like a deep stream of feeling about it. That was the thing. Like it wasn't just like like you said, it was very very kinetic, very proactive, very exciting. But it was also like this very deep rooted sensation of like this stream running through everybody of just being very um, in love with it, mm -hmm. passionate about it. You know, and I feel like that's that's kind of what I mean. Like. When we were on the road and talking to my friends and everything, when I think about those times, I feel like, you know, I think I was in love with my friends, you know, and I think that's really what it was. Like, I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't want a girlfriend. You know, all I want to do is play in my band and I wanted to be with my friends at all times. Mm -hmm. And I love, I've always loved the gang mentality, which is what punk music has always sort of presented. Like, it's you against the world. It's your group and you just have to go out there and do the things that you want to do for yourself. Right. And, and I think that love came of it, and that's what's so exciting about it, you know? It's crazy. It's a wild time, you know? It's, a, it's, a, it's amazing. It's, it's difficult, too, because there's so many components to it that it's hard to, like... You know, because I always look back now, like, being 39 years old and thinking, like, oh, my God, I was in, like, my 20s at that time. And I kick myself now sometimes because I think also when you're at that age you don't even even when you feel that I still realize that there were lots of times that I was not as friendly as I could have been mm -hmm. not as open to other people as I should have been you know like I just felt like I had my friends and that's all I needed like it's nice to meet you cool but this is my crew you know like I'm good yeah. whereas now I'm like fuck I wish I had expanded that to, to have that even more connection with all those people you know like I meet people now that I see I mean I saw you all the time we never sat down and had some like super emotional deep conversation right, at one yeah. of those shows mm -hmm. we knew each other we and we and everything worked fine we had a, a great fine relationship but what could it have been if we had connected sooner yeah. you know and all that stuff chris fry and, and bull and all that you know i knew them but we didn't like go to dinner at each other's houses we didn't go play i mean we did sometimes play softball together but you know what i mean like you know like all those different things it's just for every great thing, there's all those things just like, damn, I wish I had done that too, you know? Because it was such a great opportunity. It was such a great time. But I think that at least the appreciation of yeah. each other was always understood. I mean, even if everyone wasn't always hanging out together. And it's impossible. That's yeah. the other thing too. It's yeah, like, yeah. there's no way. There's no time. There's not enough time in the day. Because you, and that's amazing too, is you remember like what all of us were doing. We were all also just living our lives too. We all had jobs to do. We all were going to school or our families. Yeah, and no one could be full-time putting, you know, dealing with punk. Right. Yeah. 90s. And that's the thing is, it's so, yeah, it, yeah, it's neat. Yeah, it's, 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 it's incredible. You know, like, you think of, and that's, and I think that's what the great thing about that time was, is that people very quickly found their mark rather easily and got into it and really just went with it, right? Like, people who were, who were fucking making a zine, they made a fucking zine. Like, that was, that's what they did. They, they found that, and that was their thing, you know? Like, my friend Mike Parcells, good friend Beth Blossom, and a bunch of her uh, female friends from Princeton, when he met them, that's what their thing was. They didn't play in a band. I think they might have wanted to, but they never bothered to. They were sort of, but they did zines, and they fucking love zines. Yeah. You know, and when people were like, I do shows. Like, I, my thing is to bring bands to 48th and Baltimore at that church in that basement, and we're going to put on fucking shows there. That's what that crew did. And, and or like this guy these guys were into the band or they did this or they I mean it was just so cool yeah because the community can't function unless everybody's doing a different part of it right everybody can't be in the band because there'd be nowhere to perform no one to write about right. it you know and it's, it was nice that there was this yeah. cohesive whole of all the parts are functioning and I wonder if that's kind of like the same thing like you were saying before it's like uh, 
there's no way for us to all to have all been it's it's not a perfect world where you can all connect in such a deep meaningful way but you can rely on knowing that, like that person is there to do that that part of that and you appreciate it you respect it and you each support each other in that way you know what i mean it's like you know, I don't have a personal relationship with the floor that I'm standing on, but I'm, I'm trusting that's holding me up. And yeah, I really yeah, yeah. appreciate that it's doing that. You know? Yeah, I think there was a, a it was it was warm and organic, and there was a, a level of responsibility yeah. because it because it was a you know a somewhat insular community, so you couldn't be a dick, you couldn't rip bands off and get away with it because it would never happen again. Right. Uh, and I think it was, I think it was a really great time for for Philadelphia bands and, and underground community because. It was also tightly knit that all these things could work uh, well. You know, there were spaces found, so so shows happened. Because I think that there were periods where there were great, like barren periods in in Philly history where there weren't these things happening, where they were relying on if the sleazy club owner allows us to do this show, then right. we can have a show, and then the cops are going to come in and hit everybody over the head with a baton, right. or the skinheads are going to come in and you know there's going to be a big fight. But here, it was so off the radar. There was never that threat. Yeah, that it was like which is actually it, pretty amazing. Yeah, there was there was almost no violence, which in Philadelphia was really weird. I mean, that wasn't you know that's actually a, I never I actually never considered that because you're right because I mean I remember I I remember shows I went to that had violence at them. I remember you know seeing the black hole on South Street and that when there was a cop riot and all that stuff. But you're right, those shows they were they were just always like these perfect moments of just being able to enjoy the art that's there and yeah, and yeah. yeah there was never violence or anything it, I mean I think the only time that ever became a problem was when was when Cabbage moved to I guess the 21st Street Church and people started drinking outside occasionally you know yeah, right yeah. and that was the biggest problem yeah it would always be when, when people came in who didn't really know how it, it how, how it and, worked and, yeah, what the scene people, was right yeah and those people kind of had to be you know informed of this it's just not the way that we, we run this that we thing. operate I don't care if you drink it makes no fucking difference to me you can't do it at this event exactly because then there can't be another event and and, and that's the thing and maybe that's maybe that's the really interesting point that came out of all of that is that and maybe what actually seems to be missing these days um, there was like a real responsibility right there was a sense of responsibility like you went to those shows and you knew that you were, you had to behave a certain way because you wanted to make sure that, that space could continue to operate. Yeah. So it wasn't like this, it wasn't like operating in a sense of a good two-shoes thing. It was a positive that like, we're all so in support of this that we would never dream of doing something to jeopardize it, you know? Where as, as you get more and more people going who don't know sort of the vibe of the scene, that ends up not happening anymore. People come, they drink, like how the, how the 21st Street Church ended up becoming sort of just, I mean, for all intents and purposes, other than being all ages, just another venue. Yeah. You know, like, there was nothing, there was no community operating in that space. Yeah, like, no one's going to be setting up a table of, like, free vegan food. Right. You know, which I always thought, like, if you give people food, they feel good. That's true. They're happy. It elevates their mood. And they're friendly. So anybody who comes in with a bad attitude and you give them a shitty bowl of chili. (laughs) They're like, fuck (laughs) yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, this is good because nobody has any money to buy any decent food anyway. Do the cabbage, how many shows did you guys put on? Lot. Did you ever have like a document of like how many it ended up being? Uh, Chris, fuck it, Chris Fry could surely tell you the date of every show in every band that Jesus ever played. Christ. them. He's really good about that. But yeah, there were there were a lot of shows. And when did when did the cabbage start? Uh, well, we did shows in in South Jersey in the in the very late eighties. Basically, the, some of the same people: Chris okay. Fry, Bull, my brother, and me, as uh, Orgasmic Productions at the Harmon Theater, where Exhumed later. Began. Right, 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 right. And then. 
everybody started moving to Philly in the late 80s, early 90s, early 90s, and then we started doing shows there probably like, I can't say for certain, but 91, 92 maybe? Okay. Maybe as late as 93, but I think it was probably 92, 93, something like that. And then they ran consistently until uh, 97, and then there were a couple other shows after that. I think the last one was really 2000. So I feel like I only ever became aware of you guys when you were in 48th in Baltimore. Well, that was the first. Oh, was it? That was yeah, the first that, spot? That was really? the first as Cabbage Collective. Gotcha, okay. Yeah, which, which had like all of the key players. Gotcha. And then that ended with the Citizen Fish show because too many people came out who didn't behave properly, right. who were drinking and stuff. Right. And then, then it kind of moved around. So then it was the, the Church of 21st and Chestnut. Do you remember what, do you, I, I know Chris Price seems to be the, the documentarian, but yeah. do you remember what the first show was at 48th in Baltimore? It was, uh, I think it was Black 77... Yes, stuntman. Holy shit! Uh, I think stuntman played. Uh, yeah, I should remember this. Uh, I don't remember. That's great. Um, wait, there was a, it was like a it was a band that's still around, like kind of a spikier. I don't know. Well, anyways, yeah. anti scene. No, 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 those guys are perfect. Yeah. So, that, and how did you guys settle on forty eight? Like, how did you find that space? Um, we go into this a little bit in the interview on the other thing. I think that what it was was that um, Bull or Chris became aware that people would would rent that space for other stuff. Like activists would sure. have like little me- meetings and things there and that they would be open to letting us do it. And West Philly was really alien to, to me at the time. Yeah. Uh, I think to everybody. Yeah, because I would like come in and go to, to South Street to, to buy records, you know, and sure. like Third Street. And then I was going to shows in North Philly, like Club Pizzazz, or we would go to uh, City Gardens in, yep. in Trenton. But West Philly was just kind of a weird, weird part of the city where nothing else was happening. Uh, but they let us do the shows there up until we had the, the problems with the, you know, the chaos punks and, and all right. that was coming up for that show. It's amazing how things just become... And that's when, the, and then ultimately, I think that's what ends up happening, is that no matter what, unfortunately... You have this amazing opportunity at this perfect moment in time where things are really just a beautiful, amazing time. And nothing can ever last, you know? Like, and that's the reality of how things are, right? Nothing can ever last. So yeah, yeah. you have this great time, and then it just sort of has to get too big for itself. It has to get rotten in some way. It has to get judgmental of each other. Some, certain people in the scene don't like the other people in the scene and they fight as opposed to being like, wait a minute, what do you mean? We're all part of the same thing. And then you get back to that base of things like, well, it's, it doesn't matter whether you're punk, it's just a bunch of people and human beings all have these problems no matter what they name themselves, you yeah. know? So. I think that the best thing that any of the people who are involved in that scene can hope for is that they've planted all these seeds in different people's heads so that, that when you were playing those shows or when we were doing those shows that there were younger people coming in who were shown something really positive. Uh, they were shown how these things work, how they could be. They didn't come into a scene that was filled with violence or, right. or with drugs. And that it planted little little seeds in everybody's heads. And then I think that different people disperse in different directions, you know, and they don't necessarily remain punk for life. Sure. Which is fine. And, uh, but that, that the ethos, uh, that the little seed that was planted in their head kind of grows and that they take something of that through life. So maybe that makes them a somewhat better person because right. of their experience in this really positive thing. And I think that's the best legacy. And also, that it's kind of part of a continuum. Like, you can bracket in these years and say, you contributed something right. you know, from this year to this year and that there were dudes who came before you who did it. And this right. kind of comes out you know, in the project here. 
and that there are people today who are still doing this thing. Yep. So you played your part. So the cosmic, the cosmic stream of the entire yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. So no, like, I, so I the totally chain, agree. Yeah, like you don't want to break in the chain. And there's been like some serious fractures or fissures or gaps, right? But for the most part, the chain kind of remains. It's kind of the torch is passed on right. to folks. Because like, in some of the interviews when I talk to some older people, uh, they're sometimes really surprised that there is still a DIY really? scene. Yeah. Um, they've li- which is interesting. They've they've become so far removed from it that it. The guess thing is because I, I don't think you or I would 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 say that we're as embedded in it as we no, used to of be. Not. But I still am aware of many oh, different things. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, interesting yeah. that you, that there are people that would that would be so far removed from it. They'd be like, oh, really? That's yeah. still, that like, still exists. The <laughs> last the last interview that I did was with uh, Bobby Startup, who who is the oldest of the people that I interviewed yeah. at sixty eight, and he basically brought punk to Philly in right. the seventies. Uh, prior to that, was working with sixties rock bands like Starting Electric Factory and all this, and then brings punk to Philly with the Hot Club, is instrumental in helping to bring hardcore to Philly in the early 80s, you know, clubs for, for them to play. Um, and was talking about the DIY ethos, like why he was he was an older guy at the mm-hmm. time when, when hardcore comes along. So he doesn't necessarily initially connect with the music, but really likes the idea of these kids Of what saying, they're doing. Yeah, and, and initially there's a friction between him and the kids because the kids are think, looking at him, seeing him as an old man, like, we don't want to have anything to do with your clubs, you know, we want to do our own thing, we want to find our own spaces. Right. Uh, they don't realize that they're not at odds, that he, he is actually... Totally on board. Because he's worked in the system and it's, you know, some parts of it not so agreeable to him. Yeah, so he's on board. And so he said to me in the interview, you know, it was so great that these kids had this this ethic and this drive to do these things. I wish that was still around now. Uh, and I was trying to point out to him that it absolutely is. Right. That, Let me show you this website. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. Like there's all there's all kinds of kids doing stuff. You yeah. Know, in in their basements in other spaces. Well, that's the thing that that's, that was so amazing about that DIY PHL thing is like that was a discovery to me I knew people were still doing shows but when you actually look at that board and you see how many people are doing shows every ton. fucking day yeah yeah I'm just like I like when I because I mean I just recently got into a new band like I you know I took I took off for like 10 years playing music I was like that's I don't want to do it anymore you know like I'm fine and I just started playing again so it just started being like well let's look to see where we could possibly play some alternative places I don't want to just go and play clubs or whatever and like Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize, there, like, in a square block radius, there's, like, 13 houses where shows are happening. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. For, a, a, for a while, you know, I was, I was concerned that um, the kids who had grown up with R5 had essentially been given these, uh, I talk about this in some of the other interviews, these really well-organized shows that were right. safe and regular and fairly priced and would bring cool bands in, but that the kids would maybe lose something of the ethos of doing it themselves because they have something that, that so few other cities or communities in the country have, which is a regular venue for cool shit. Right. Um, that you don't have to buck up against because it's it's well done and it's done by people who are, in effect, like you at this point, probably right. much older than, than, than the kids going, but, but still coming from the same kind of world. So I was afraid that that, that would be lost, and it was really kind of uh, encouraging and, and kind of thrilling for me when I talked to younger folks for, for the project to see that R5 doesn't necessarily meet all of their needs or demands. It right. is not providing a venue for smaller bands any longer. It's at no. least not to the extent that it did before. I don't, I'm not making disparaging comments about them, but they don't really cater to the same sort of... No, and um, totally. Yeah, so the, the people have adapted and that the ethos lives on so that, like you said, 
there is a shit. There's more shows happening now than ever than before. Ever before. Yeah, and you'll ever. listen, and you'll look at this list of bands. You're like, I have no idea who any of these bands are. But to these kids, they're like, that's the fucking band, man. Yeah. That's that's our guys. Yeah, you know? and it's amazing, and it's really, and it's really, and it's cool actually too because, you know, there was a while there where you know, like I was saying earlier, fourteen hours ago when I was talking. Um, you know, when you find that music and you connect to punk music in some way, or whatever, whatever you get into, like, there's that immediate need to devour as much as possible. You know, like I've always been, not only just in music, I'm like an information like uh, sponge, right? Like, if I like something, I want to know everything that I can possibly know about it. I want to know, you know, for a record, I want the liner notes. I want all the details. Like I was arguing with somebody the other day saying like how the whole concept of Apple's iTunes is so flawed from a music fan standpoint. You know, Apple's lied to everybody. They can think like, oh, they love music. The iPod's this innovative thing. Well, yeah, it's innovative, but for a music collector, I why can't I organize my records on my... This sounds weird. You should edit this out. No, 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 no. <laughs> why, why can't I organize on my iPod, which I have. I'm glad to have one. I can okay. take all my records with me. Why can't I organize all my records on my iPod by artist chronologically if I want to? Because mm -hmm. for me, how I'm a music collector, I don't know about you, but I organize my records in numerous different ways. I might do it alphabetical. I might do it by genre. I might do it by year. Yeah. If I listen to a band that I... Let's say I just got into listening to... Let's say I just got into listening to... Uh, Jonathan Richmond, right? Someone just played me a Jonathan Richmond record. I said, I want to hear as much Jonathan Richmond as I can. And then I realized, oh, there's like fucking 27 records. Yeah. And I don't know I don't know one from the other. Well, if I organize them chronologically, then I can allow myself to learn how he musically progressed through this thing. Yeah, and yeah. that's a learning process, mm -hmm. right? Can't do that with iTunes. If there, if there were truly an, a music fan, they would do that. You know what I mean? Like, there's all yeah, these. It's a things. commodity. It's a commodity. Correct. Yeah. So Correct. really, like, you gotta find your own creative ways of curation because they are selling you a bunch of zeros and ones that right. they call music. Yeah. But I'm like that with everything, right? So if I if I like a comic book, I want to read all the comic books. I get all the books. I get all the graphic novels. I devour them and I consume them and I yeah. learn all the characters, et cetera, et cetera. It's just how I am. If I like a movie, I want to know the directors, all the movies. I didn't know shit about the new music scene when I started playing in a band again because I had been away from it for a while. I mean, I was always listening to new bands, but like you said, there's more shows now and more bands than there's ever been. You yeah. Know? But how do you tap into it if you're not if you're not familiar with it? And finding these types of sites again has been so exciting because you learn all of these new bands again. So like, I found all these new great bands that I'm just like, oh, that's fucking great. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it's like, and it's so exciting again to be like, you know. Granted, my tastes are different now. So like, where before I feel like. You know, in that late '90s sort of aggro punk from San Diego, where you're like, "Oh, Second Story Window is the greatest band ever." Uh -huh. You listen back now, and you're just like, Ooh, "Jesus, <laughs> maybe not." You know, but it's still so exciting when you find that one band where you're like, "Oh, that band fucking rules!" Like, there's this band I had no no, no idea about. Um, they've since broke up, unfortunately. But I went to this show uh, at this place. Um, it's called Growlers now in South Philly, but these kids are doing shows there constantly. Um, a band called Shoppers. They were from upstate New York, Syracuse. Um, Three-piece, kind of screamo, arty, amazing fucking band. Never heard them. Saw them. Blew my fucking mind. I was like, this is what I want to do. That's actually I think when I started making me want to be like, I want to play music again. Yeah. I saw them. I would never heard of them, and I was able to dig them up. All they had was a Bandcamp page, you know. They had a little seven-inch, yeah. like it was totally underground. Which I was like, "That's how it used to be," and that's yeah. what I loved. And that goes back kind of the thing, like, you know, I got out of playing music. I didn't, you know, not that anybody cares, but like, I stopped playing music in about two thousand and three. I after Franklin broke up, I started playing on my own in this thing called AMFM and doing some stuff, and that was a lot of fun. But I just got kind of sick of 
for myself, the reality that I became aware of trying to make the band into something that was actually a business, right? Mm-hmm. I, I felt myself worrying about press agents and, and the right tour and all these things that yeah. I found really depressing, right? So I didn't want to do it anymore. Like, I just, I didn't feel right about it. And I realize now, like, the thing that I love the most about music was the fact that it was played in basements. It was... Uh, Truly, at the time, for for us during that time, there was no hope of of being making. You never thought about it being a career. Like you never. It was just you just not at twenty dollars a show. Right. (laughs) Exactly. The saddest career in the world. Right. You just did it. Like and and I I think that kind of like that. I think maybe that goes back to that idea of us against the world type of mentality. When all of a sudden it gets commodified into this thing where it's all of a sudden acceptable and everything's everywhere and. The songs are on commercials, and you could sell, you know, your song that you wrote in your bedroom could actually now be sold to MTV for some show. Mm-hmm. It changes like the whole scenario of it, you know. And I want to be able to go to see a show and see a band throw a guitar through a wall, like when I used to see Born Against play. Yeah. I'd be scared. Like, I, like I, I didn't know what the hell was going on. You know, like I, this is too much for me to absorb. And now you go to shows, and there's, and you know, I felt like for a long time, like I saw no danger. All I saw were people in what I perceived to be like the minor leagues trying to get to the major leagues, right? Mm-hmm. But now, like I was going back to what I was saying with the whole underground thing, these bands are like what those bands were. They're just doing it because they have to do it. Yeah. They're playing basements, shoppers. Nobody is going to release a shoppers record, right? Uh-huh. They did it on their own label because, and they fucking rule, right? And now she's got another great band. I don't even know what the hell it's called, but. They're going to do it on their own terms, and it's so exciting again that way. You know, and like I said, like you said, it, it, even if we're not completely in touch with it, you're part of that continuous cosmic stream. Yeah, I just want to know thing. it's there, even right. if I can't. Like, I can't go to every show. Right. I can't go to hardly any shows because I'm so you know fucking busy running other yeah. shit. But I like to know that it's happening. Yeah. And that uh, so I say a show, be listening to Philly with with four bands, and then I look on Bandcamp to see if there are pages for those bands, and some of them are there. So here's a chance to hear this this yep. kind of thing. And then, yeah, there's a, there's a new band uh, oh. that I've never heard of before. So, yeah, I can't make it out of the show because I have to, like, you know, run a business or, of course. or interview a dude or whatever. <laughs> or I just don't feel like taking the fucking Which, nine bus. Exactly. i got to go to but, sleep at 9.30. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's the same thing for me. i got to get up at 5.30 in the morning. But it exists. I'm glad to know that it exists. Yeah. And, and, and it's really exciting, I think, too, uh, that we're older now is being able to look back and say, it was really exciting when you're young to say, I'm getting into this. Yeah. It's also really exciting to be older to look back and say, I was a part of that. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, again, it's, it's not a question of, it's not trying to be nostalgic for something. It's not trying to say it was better then than now. It's just really exciting to be a part of that stream. Yeah. To know that, wow, I, like, it seems so rare to find something that's so, you're, you become so passionate about and go through it. Yeah, and like and like in our age now, where we are, we're I mean we're not even done with it. We we take advantage of what we learned in that thing in other areas. Like you were saying, you put it towards your business or how you just live your life, how you deal with other people, how you handle your politics, everything. But to imagine that you actually started at what fifteen years old, fourteen yeah, years yeah. old, 30, and you've and you've actually gone through this thing, and you're like 39, 40, 41, 42, and you're still in it. You're still going. Yeah, yeah. you know, you may not be as like you said, you're not as deep in it. But you don't need to be anymore. 
Like you had your education part, you're now into this next stage, and all those kids that are doing it right now are in that absorption period, and they will continue to move. And it, it is, like you said, it's very exciting to be a yeah, part yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really important to make a contribution, and I think yeah. that if you've looked and you've seen that you've made a significant contribution, rather than just standing on the sidelines or just consuming something, then you you've left a, a certain mark. Right. Uh, and I think. The best things that's come out of the interviews that I've done with people is like what I see with you, which is this retaining an enthusiasm. Right. I think that the the best thing that punk can do for people as they grow older is to give them still a sense of enthusiasm or of drive or of just interest in things. Yeah. You know, it's a spark of like vitality. I can clearly see it in you, and I've seen it in the in the best of the people that I've interviewed, which is most of the people I've interviewed have retained this right. vitality. You can still be blown off your ass, you know what I mean? Like, you're just yeah, like, yeah. whoa. Yeah, <laughs> I don't get that from everybody that I talk to who seem to have been, like, hammered down in, in life into the earth, or maybe didn't have uh, a, a series of experiences that were as vibrant or as thrilling as their time in punk. I mean, people can draw, from, certainly from different sources. Sure. I'm not saying that's the only way. But, but but if there's something, and that a part of that something kind of remains as a through line through you, I think it keeps people young and vital and, and interesting and interested, which I think is the most important thing. And I think you make a good point, too, with that, because I think if I were to say if the people that I know that I grew up in punk with, if there's one thing that, the same way, like you're saying, enthusiasm and interest, there's also that... They're project-oriented. Like, I'm a super project-oriented person, I think because of everything you had to do in that type of a scene where you're like, hey, if I want to play a show, we got to figure out how to put a show on. Yeah, if yeah. I want to put out a record, i got to figure out how to put a record on. So, like, I love the idea now still. Like, I, I like projects. I seem like, hey, you know what? Let's do this thing. And and if we're going to do it, let's put this whole... Like, for example, totally stupid, but my friends Jeb, Adam, yeah, Chris, yeah. all these guys from you know, all these guys from Fracture and Franklin... We talked about recently saying, hey, we don't get to see each other all that, that often anymore. We all have kids. We all have families. Let's plan a trip together that would be like a road trip like we used to go on. So now we're planning something for June of 2014. With just you guys? Or yes. With the okay. Just yeah. us. Right, that good. we'll do like a little thing, long weekend or whatever. But it's the same thing. Like it's a project that it's like going on tour. We're going to be like, well, what are we going to do? We're going to, we're going to rent a van. We're going to drive up to here. We're going to stay here. Then we're going to go hiking up here. We're going to explore this thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it becomes a project. And and everybody that I know that has been that part of that is like yourself. Like, you know, you start your own business and you operate your own business and you, and you learn all the things you have to learn to do that. So many other people, I feel like, you know, like you said, you meet people and you can learn different things, but there may be a lack of that sense of being able to do it yourself, you know, like that, that you have the ability to do it. You yeah. can just say, oh. Fuck this! I'm just gonna do it. Yeah, punk kind of like pulls the curtain aside. You see the great Oz as a little shrimp. You right. kick him in the ass, and then you just kind of just do the thing yourself. Like right. you really, I think it shows you that you don't really need other people. That you don't need to operate within a very set standard infrastructure right. in order to go d -d 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 towards this thing and then die. Right. You know, that there's like all these deviant paths that you can take, and if you're willing to work, and and you're in, interested in engaging in process you can achieve end results and you don't have to be an anybody. Right. You know. And I think you're right and I think that's, I guess, you know, one of the best things about like the whole 90s experience was that everybody at that time who wanted to be a doer was also very much a sharer. Right? Somebody learned how to do something it was very quickly sort of like espoused around to everybody. You know? Yeah, like, like, the, like the dialer or the Kinko's card. Like right. Here was a thing that... Book your like, own life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Simple machines with their how to put out a record. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't contained. It wasn't like, no, 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 we did this. We're going to be the late... It was like, no, no. Because the thing is, 
stop asking me. I can't put your record out. Yeah. You can put your record out. Do it. You can put your show on. You know, like, and that's incredible. You know, like you said, the dialers with with Kinko cards. Make yeah, your yeah. own covers. You know, like how how many people that were ever part of that sat at Kinko's for endless hours just gluing shit together and photocopying it. Yeah. Just for one stupid flyer or or a seven inch cover. You know, mm -hmm. it's so cool. It's just amazing. You know, and that's how it is now. You just you keep doing it and just you find new ways of how to interact that same way, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's cool. It's cool. All right. Well, I think... Uh, I yeah, think yeah, 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 yeah. So, so thank you very much. Definitely. Uh, thank you.